Hello and welcome to StarkCast. I am Joe Stark, and today I've got a pretty cool episode for you guys. Um, after releasing the first episode of StarkCast, I was contacted online by a friend of mine that is in law enforcement, and he expressed interest in uh, being on the show. Now, his only caveat was that I can't mention his name, nor can I mention the city in which he works. With all the different news stories and, you know, the way that that law enforcement is portrayed in the media these days, I thought it'd be a great time to have, you know, a a law enforcement professional on the show and get their take on on some of these subjects and get their perspective on the issues. So without further ado, ladies and gentlemen, my friend Sturdy. All right, talking today with a friend in law enforcement in the state of Nevada. He is Good an job. Awesome. <laughs> he is also an Iraqi war veteran with a master's degree in criminology. Uh, how you doing tonight, Sturdy? Hey, pretty good. How are you doing, bud? <laughs> good. And I pronounced uh, Nevada right that time, so yes. good on me. Yes, you did. Uh, for you listeners, he said Nevada, which is uh, could uh, could bring a, a gun being pointed in your head and certain parts of Nevada. So I just wanted to make sure you got that right for y'all. <laughs> Excellent. Yeah. 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 I guess I've never spoken with a, so what would be like the, like I'm from Iowa, so we're, we'd be an Iowan. So what would be the, you know, would it be a Nevadan or? A Nevadan. Nevadan. See, yes. Yeah, I'm just not getting these vowels correctly tonight. <laughs> no, it's fine. <laughs> <laughs> Well, um, yeah, man, I was excited to be able to talk with you and uh, get your perspective on kind of where the the world is at right now. And being in law enforcement and, you know, an Iraqi war veteran, you have um, a much more unique perspective on the world than just your, you know, average person who maybe hears about these things on the news. All right. Or, and um, so uh, what led to you joining the Army? Well, when I was in high school, um, we had the first um, um, desert storm. So, I was in high school during that time. And I remember um, I was too young at that time. And I was pretty convinced that that was going to be over by the time I became of age. But I always remember thinking, okay, if I get that opportunity when I'm older, like in college or something, that I'm going to answer that call of duty. I didn't really have any like hard desire to be in the military, but I felt like, okay, if, if I've been blessed with these abilities and good health and the mindset to be able to do that, I should be doing it. So many later, many years later, 9-11 happens. So to kind of describe what's going on when 9-11 happens. So I wake up that morning of 9-11 and do you hear my little daughter in the background? <laughs> yeah, that's all good, man. <laughs> okay. She's <laughs> calling out for mommy. Um, so anyways, 9-11 happens. And so that morning I'm in our family room and I'm fairly fairly new, a newlywed. And I'm watching the TV. And the first thing that comes on is that 
first, I'm sorry, the second plane into the towers. And I remember yelling down stairs to my wife, we're under attack. And she's like, what? So I was like, you just have to come and look. And so she comes upstairs and we sit there and we watch the whole thing unfold. And I basically become basically mute because um, I'm just like mulling over this and can't figure it out. And I, both of us were in college at that time. So we end up going to our classes and everything. And I still become just like really quiet and not really talking to her or anybody else. And uh, just like really like praying over it and just contemplating it and everything. And then I remembered what I had said to myself back in high school. Like if this event or if this time ever comes again, where it's basically my my call of duty, I'm going to do that. And so that just weighed really heavy on my heart for about two weeks. And I finally went into the recruiter's office and asked him about what it would take to, uh, to enlist. And, um, and about two weeks after that, um, I was basically enlisted and just waiting to get shipped off to basic training. So speed that along after basic training and everything, I end up getting stationed with the 3rd Infantry Division. Uh, so if, do you remember watching much of it on the news at all, Stark? Um, you know, a little bit, but I, most of my memories from there with the news is the stuff that immediately happened. I mean, I spent most of that day um, on 9-11, just camped out on a couch at a friend's right. house watching CNN. And then I was actually working at a gas station at that time while I was in college. And I spent my entire shift just directing traffic to the yeah. pumps because everybody was convinced that gas was going to go up to like oh, yeah. a gallon. Yeah. And, you know, I mean, it was pretty wild. So, I mean, when I think back to those times, that's more the memories that stick out. So I don't really okay. remember the way that the specifically the news was covering, covering it at the time. Got it. Now at the start of the war, do you remember watching the war at all on TV? Like when we're, when the war actually started in Iraq, do you I remember much of that? No. Okay. Well, so, 3rd Infantry Division, uh, we ended up being the first unit deployed over there, and we had the media with us. So, um, what I did in the military was what we called a geospatial analyst, or basically just a, a, a map maker. We made high-end maps for basically the battle planning. And so the work that we did went directly to the generals that were making the, the, the war plans, basically. So we were always tacked or right next to the commanding general. Um, so at that time, it was General Blunt. So it was really cool because we had direct line to the general who was basically making all these plans and everything. And we also had a lot of media around us. Um, so we got a lot of coverage uh um, home side or in the United States, um, the third infantry did because we had all the media with us and we were with the general that was making all the, the war plans and stuff like that. Actually got to meet Ted Koppel, uh, a couple of times while we were there. It's actually funny. Um, so we had Ted Koppel in our camp and I was a private at this time. And of course, as a private, one of our duties was we had to go out and burn the, uh, the shitters. So basically it was these big <laughs> metal tins um, that were cut in half. And so all the crap was uh, built up in them and you'd have to fill them up with diesel fuel and burn them. And it would take all day to burn. Oh my God. Uh, yeah. To burn these things out. Right. So uh, 
I had that duty that day and I ran into Ted Koppel when we were in the mess hall. And I go up and I greet myself and I was like, hey, Ted Koppel, uh, I'd just like to meet you and get a picture with you. And he's like, oh, yeah, sure. And I mean, this is a guy who's covered every single con uh, conflict since I think Korea, mm -hmm. maybe even further back. And I was like, I want to take a picture with you, but I kind of have a special request. And he goes, oh, yeah, sure. Nothing. Uh, nothing will bother me. I'm cool with that. And I was like, well, I have to go burn the crappers today. Would you mind joining us <laughs> doing this and take a picture with us? And uh, so he just starts laughing and giggling with his big old smile and everything. And he's like, out of all the conflicts I've ever covered, I have never had a soldier ask me to do that. He's like, of course I'll do that. So I've got <laughs> this, yeah. So I've got this picture of me, Ted Koppel, burning crap out in the middle of uh, the Iraq desert. So it was a lot of fun. Damn, that's weird. <laughs> yeah. So, but ultimately, I had a lot of fun in Iraq, and um, the reason is is because I was able to actually see what I was working and training on go into effect. Does that make sense? Because yeah. a lot of people, they go into the military, like during peacetime and stuff, and they get all this training and they do all this schooling and training and everything, but they never see the effects of it. Like it actually come to fruition or it actually be used for what, for its purpose. So we got to do that and we made these maps. We made these strategic plans for the, the commander and we saw them actually using this for, for how they planned out the, the war and everything. So it was really cool on that side of it. Um, yeah, that'd be a really unique perspective. Yeah. And that's, that's what I really enjoyed about it was just being able to see, okay, this is what we're doing. Um, or this is everything I've trained up to do, and now it's actually being used for its full purpose. Um, I remember before the war started, we were in Kuwait, and we were building maps and um, target locations for the intel. And the intel had given us a bunch of grid coordinates or areas that they were going to attack. And so I'm plugging these grid coordinates into the map system, and I start to look at one grid coordinates that they gave me and it wasn't looking right to me. I was like, this does not look like anything that's even remotely militarized or uh, associated to the Iraqi army or anything. So I started to question it and it looked more like just a real small town or village uh, on the near border or pretty, pretty far on the uh, southern border of Iraq. So I questioned it and I took it back to the Intel and I was like, hey, you guys really need to check this grid coordinates. I have some concerns about it. It doesn't look like it's militarized or anything of the sort. So they go back and they look at it and everything and they come back and they're like, man, you just, you saved a lot of lives right there. And I was like, uh, I'm sorry, can you explain a little bit more on that? And they're like, yeah, that great coordinates was completely off. If we had actually targeted that, that section, it was basically, it was what I thought it was a little small village that had nothing to do with the, the, uh, the war going on whatsoever. And they were going to use, I believe, artillery and um, choppers on that attack. Oh, and shit. Yeah. So, I mean, that was a huge, you know, boost at, before even the war started for me. I was like, okay, that's the reason why I'm here. You know, God, there's yeah. a reason why I'm here is <laughs> <It's to, it's laughs> for things like that. So, 
so I ended up getting a, an accommodation award for that and stuff. So it was pretty cool. So, and then the war started, kicked off. We were there for the first seven months of the war and people will come up and they'll ask me, you know, like, should we have been there? You know, where were the weapons of mass destruction? Like the president said there were and stuff. And so I've got a couple of answers to that. The first one I don't know if you ever do you remember them talking about the 52 cards or the 52 hit list or most yeah. wanted? Okay. Yep. So my team actually made those cards that we were given oh. out to the army. I mean, oh, we, that's cool. Yeah. Because we had these huge printers and we had all the computers to do and stuff. So we made those 52 cards and handed them out to like the civilians and everything. But the way I saw it was this is our weapon of mass destruction are these people because they obviously had the mentality, the mindset, the ability to make these weapons of mass destruction. Maybe they didn't have the actual physical weapons there, but they had the people in line and the ability to do that. So I saw them as basically they are the weapon of mass destruction. It's their minds and their place in this society or in, in this government that 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 they are the ones that are the, the absolute um, uh, threat to neighboring countries, their own people. Um, so that's my kind of answer to the weapons of mass destruction. Yeah, maybe the phys we didn't really find any physical weapons, but we did have the people that could do it. And so to go in hand with those cards, one of our jobs was to go out and meet the, uh, meet the public people and communicate with them and talk to them and stuff. So this one day we were outside of our base in, in Iraq and we're making contact with the public people and handing out the cards and stuff. And this was just the day after Saddam's son had, one of his sons had been captured. So the public people, we didn't know how they were going to react and they were pretty excited. They were ecstatic about this news. And so I was kind of caught up with that and I was like okay that's interesting they're really excited that we, that we got one of their sons but but there's kind of a confusion they thought that we'd actually gotten Saddam and they were really excited about that and then we say oh no it was his son and they're like oh okay but that's that's still cool I mean they're still excited about that so this one group of kids that we we're talking to they're like in their low, middle teens or um, low teens so we're talking to them and trying to, you know, just tell them what's going on. And behind them, about 15 feet, was another teen, a little bit older, but he wasn't coming and approaching us. So I was kind of concerned about that. I was like, okay, why is this guy not coming and talking to us? He's not following what everybody else is doing. So, of course, that caught my attention, and I was a little concerned. So I asked one of the kids, I was like, hey, that guy over there, um, what's the deal with him? Why isn't he coming over here and talking to us? And the kid starts motioning to his tongue. And I was like, okay, what's wrong with his tongue? Well, ultimately, they explained to me that this guy had Down syndrome. And because he had Down syndromes, the Saddam government regime had his tongue cut out just due to the fact that he had Down syndromes. And what? yes, I am deadly honest about this. And I've always oh, man, had a, that's horrible. Yeah, I've always had a huge, huge heart for Down syndrome children. And so when I saw that, I was like, you've got to be kidding me. And so I asked a little bit more and found out that he had married the opposite sect of the Muslim. You know how 
they had the two they have the two different sects of uh, sections of Muslim beliefs there. Yep. Um, so he, the the person that was Down syndrome, he was of the same sect as Saddam Hussein. So other than having the Down syndrome, he was okay. But he had married outside and married the other sect, and she had become pregnant. Well, she ended up being killed uh, by the Iraqi army or military because she had become pregnant by him who had Down syndromes and was and her being of the different sect. And I was like, okay, those things right there basically summed it up to me. I was like, okay, that is why we're here is when I find yeah. out first firsthand, this is what's going on from the local people. I, I, at that time, it's like I could care less about the weapons of mass destruction. I could have cared less about the war on terror or any of that stuff. It's like, okay, these people need to be liberated from this type of dictatorship. Yeah, so, absolutely. So that was basically summed it up for me there. Uh, we stayed, I stayed in Iraq until um, for seven months. Um, probably one of the coolest days. My, my, um, the day we took over Iraq was actually uh, on my birthday, and so it was really oh, that's pretty cool. Yeah, it was quite an interesting birthday because we just saw it was a really cool because we were at the airport that day, and what we saw were these uh, teams of um, war hogs. Do you know what the war hog planes look like? No. Okay, you'll have to look those up. They're 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 pretty. They were old planes, and I think they were about to get rid of them. And but they're really good at uh, air assault onto like tanks and stuff like that. They basically have this fifty cal gun on the front of their plane, and it just rotates this fifty cal um, and just annihilates anything that's right in front of it. And there's there's like no wow. high tech thing to this thing or anything. Basically, it's just a pilot pointing his plane straight at the target and just unloading this 50 cal. <laughs> um, so it was teams of three and they would come in about every 10 minutes. And the first one would lay down their 50 cal gun. And it's just this very unique sound. You'd have to look it up on YouTube um, and see what they sound like. And then the next one would come in and do a mark. So it basically send down a flare um, with his gun. And then that flare would hit the target, which would allow the third plane, which had an um, air-to-ground missile on it, and it would target that that mark that the other plane had set. And it went like that all day long, and it was just massive explosions, and uh, that, that ended up being the day where they, they, they brought down uh, Saddam Hussein's um, statue and everything. Do you remember that? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So that was all that day. So it was, it was a really cool experience to, to be there and see that and be a part of it and everything. And then I came back and they redesigned the military and I ended up getting moved up to Fort Drum, which is up in New York, right off the Canadian border. So I go from the heat of the Iraqi desert, which was actually kind of normal to me because it's very similar to Nevada and our desert <laughs> where you have these. <laughs> yeah, that would have been a good training ground. Right. Yeah. Oh, yeah, exactly. Uh, you know, these pretty extensive hot days in the summer and then these super cold nights. Um, granted, Iraq is definitely much, much hotter um, than I than Nevada ever gets. Um, but um, I go from that to 30, 30 miles off the Canadian border 
during the winter. So, and it's the 10th mountain division. So it's all snow training and stuff. So it was just like from one extreme to the next, but it was New York. I loved it up there. It was gorgeous country. I loved it. It was a lot of fun up there as well too. And then after that, then I got out and then back into the civilian war world. Is that when you, uh, is that kind of what led you to wanting to be in law enforcement was, um, you know, using some of the skills and whatnot that you'd learned in the military? Well, I mean, it came, it, it definitely helped down the road, but it definitely, I, I never had any desire whatsoever of going into <laughs> law enforcement. I had a friend um, who went into law enforcement, a high school buddy. And so when I come back, I started working for a good buddy of mine who owned a company. And so I went straight, I seriously got off from the military on Saturday. And then the very next Monday, I was at work for my buddy at a flooring company. And so I did that and what ended up happening. So it's a flooring company for the housing market, all brand new housing, right? So the housing market starts to drop and my buddy, extremely intelligent businessman, probably the most intelligent businessman I've ever met in my life. Well, he ended up basically putting, putting all, putting everything together and seeing the housing market happening before it actually did about a year and a half before it actually started to cook off and drop. So he started prepping his business to, to weather the, the housing market crash. And so at, at the time it was like 2006, the summer of 2006, he starts basically downsizing his company from 200 employees. And then right before the housing crash, housing market crash happened. He was down to about like 20, 25 employees. Oh, wow. Yeah. But he, he was just extreme. He's a genius when it comes to business and he saw, he saw the writing on the wall and he knew what to do to get himself ready for it. And he was primed right for it. So in the midst of that, I mean, he's probably my best friend. And so from two summer of 2006 to the summer of 2007, I'm like looking at myself and I was like, well, I'm a pretty, pretty pricey employee for him. And I know that he would never like let me go or fire me or anything, but I was like looking at, well, maybe there's some other options out there where I can step away from this and save like my, my one job would probably save like four other jobs in the company just because of how much I was getting paid. So, uh, my other buddy from high school was in law enforcement and I did a couple of ride alongs with him, and he's like, Hey, maybe you should try out for, for the department and, and see if you like it. So I was like, Oh yeah, might as well. It won't, it won't it's not going to hurt. And so I put in and exactly a year after I put in, it's, it was a long, long process. It took a just shy of a year of, um, of putting in my application to finally being hired uh, because it's a very long drawn out process of interviews on top of uh, um, on top of other interviews, um, background checks. Uh, you have to do a polygraph worst four hours of my entire life was that polygraph test. (laughs) I can only imagine how uncomfortable that would be. Oh yeah. Because, well, the thing is, and like I kind of explained to you, um, offline was that I'm, I'm an open book. I'm a very honest guy about who I was in high school and stuff. So in high school, as a teenager, I had used marijuana like over a hundred times, countless times. I'd used LSD four times. 
Um, I'd used mushrooms and stuff. So this stuff comes up in the polygraph. So when he goes, do they judge you against that sort of stuff? That well, you had like a psychedelic experience, even if it was years and years before. Well, Ellis, well oh, you're talking about like flashbacks and stuff. Well, no, just, or, just that. You know, there's, I don't know. There's so much hysteria around psychedelics in general that right. I was just wasn't sure if it would have just cast a pall over or something, or you know, like someone might judge you or whatever that doesn't really even have all the facts. Right. No, basically with the polygraph test, they're seeing if you're being honest with everything. So the question comes up, have you ever used uh, illegal drugs or illegal substances? And and the question is ever. So I'm like, okay, yes, I've used marijuana. Well, how many times? Countless times, over 100 for sure. Did you ever use it after the age of 18? No. Have you ever used any other illegal substances? Yes, I used LSD four times. And again, they're asking you, okay, did you use it before you were, before you were 18? Yes. Because the thing is, is all that falls in to me being a juvenile. So I, after 18, then it would have been a concern. Uh, oh, okay. Because then you're an actual an adult committing an actual crime. Mm-hmm. As compared to as a juvenile, those are juvenile offenses. Not You're not being charged with like a crime or anything. So that's what they're trying to look at is, okay, was any of this drug use prior uh, to you becoming 18? And if it had happened after 18, has it been within the last seven years? And so I was clear of both of those. It was all as a teenager. And it was well past seven years for me by that time. <laughs> so, but I was still freaking out. It was like, after I like sat there for four hours, you're, you're seriously sitting dead still. You can't move at all. You have to stare in the corner for four hours. So I walk out of there and I was like, I'm done. There's no way they're going to take me after I basically said all that stuff. It's like, how are they, how are they even going to think to 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 let me onto the force and ultimately they did obviously and uh because of it all being a juvenile offense really so that that was their main concern is am i going to be honest and the stuff that i did was it as a juvenile or as an adult and within the last seven years um so yeah past the polygraph then they have you do a, a psych evaluation where you answer all these weird questions for like uh, about an hour and a half to see if you're like mentally capable of being a law enforcement officer. And then there's basically the final um, offer if you want to become a police officer. And uh, that came my way and I was, that door opened for me. And so I was like, yeah, sure, I'll do this. So I ended up having to go back to Craig and telling Craig, I was like, hey, I know that you're in this super tight spot and I have this opportunity. Uh, to go into law enforcement and he was like, Hey, I totally get it. He was really thankful for me doing that. And, um, I mean, we're still the best of friends to this day. So that's how I ended up getting into the law enforcement. It was basically a fluke or caused by the housing, housing crash. (laughs) Yeah. How random is that? (laughs) Mm -hmm. Yeah. And it's, it's interesting because I'm a FTO a field training officer now and the basically other than one person everybody i've trained or i've worked with they they've that's all they've ever wanted to be is law enforcement they wanted to be a cop since they were a kid they wanted to 
being some type of law, law enforcement because their dad was, their grandpa was. It's, you know, that generational thing. Uh, that's still a really big thing in uh, law enforcement, especially out west. I don't, I'm assuming it's that way out east, but definitely west. If, if your family's law enforcement, that's what you stay in is, you know, if you have a son, that son's going to be in law enforcement. Uh, so it's basically just kind of ingrained in them. Now, coming into it from such a different angle is some, yeah. of the, some of those other people that, you know, if they grew up with it in their family, they probably had a pretty good idea of what they were getting into. Was um, was there anything that seemed shocking to you about it? I mean, or, you know, basically what were your perceptions from yeah. that side of the badge? Right. Definitely eye-opening. Um, and I totally encourage anybody out there to do ride-alongs with any local law enforcement agency that's by you because I was in a bubble. Like when I was working for my buddy and making really good money and living a pretty ritzy lifestyle, uh, especially with him as my friend, you fall into this protective bubble of not knowing of all basically the evilness and the crime that's going on out there around you. And like it, it's a totally different experience for me to like walk through a mall or like through a Walmart or something as compared to when before being in mil or being in, uh, being in law enforcement, because you just, you look at people differently. Um, you recognize people's behaviors a lot. Um, like their suspicious behaviors. You recognize it a lot lot easier and a lot more often like recently i was at a walmart i was walking out the walmart and thankfully i was by myself and not with my kids or anything and so i saw a, a guy that was walking out behind me and he looked suspicious and i was like all right that guy just doesn't seem like he's up to any good so there's an elderly lady there and they've got the um the magnetism or the um the the alarms if anybody like tries to walk out and the alarms go off, mm -hmm. right. With like a high dollar item or something. So there's this elderly lady there. She's standing there and I walk through the, through the alarms first. They don't go off. And the guy behind me walks through them and the alarms start going off. And as they're going off, I hear the elderly lady start to call out, sir, sir, I need you to stop, sir. I need you to, I need to check your receipt. Well, he ends up stopping. So I kind of slowed down. I was like, all right, I'm going to wait and see what happens here. And he, uh, he goes, oh, what can, I, what can I do for you? And the, the elderly lady, she goes, uh, can I see your receipt? And he goes, oh, yeah. And he's, he's like fumbling through his bag. And I was like, all right, this guy, he doesn't have a receipt. And he goes, oh, my girlfriend must have it. She's still inside. And the second she turns to look behind her to see if there's a girlfriend, he tries to run off. Well, I'm about like four feet off of him. And so I run after her. I grab a hold of him. I grab the back of his shirt. I pull his shirt over his head. And I, <laughs> excellent. <laughs> yeah. I ultimately rip his entire shirt off of him and his shorts almost fall off. Oh, no. And so after he, he, Only I, at Walmart, right? Right, right. <laughs> so after I rip the shirt off of him, he's able to get away from me, but he drops everything. And so I, I'm sorry, it was a sweater and a shirt. So I ripped the shirt and the sweater off of him. He almost loses his shorts and then he drops his bag and he runs off. And I look back and the Walmart security guys come out. They're like, don't go after him if he, if he dropped everything. I was like, okay, if you guys are good with that, I'm fine. 
And actually, the sh- the shirt and the sweater that are ripped off of him were two of the items he had stolen. Oh, so no they're like, "Oh yeah," I was like, "Well, I guess that works out for everybody." And so, I mean, he ran off into the parking lot. I'm sure he had somebody waiting for him. But I mean, I mean, before becoming a law enforcement officer, I would have never have picked up on any of that. You know, I would have walked straight out to my car. I wouldn't have checked. You know, checked behind me to see if this guy was up to something or I wouldn't have checked or I wouldn't have picked up on his suspicious activity or anything like that. So, um, you know, that your mindset definitely changes through through the experiences that you get in law enforcement. And that's why I asked all my friends. It's like, hey, come do a ride along and see what this world is like, because it's a completely different world than you could ever even think of. Unless if you're in that world and a part of that world, you'll never even know it exists. So, you know, I mean, that's, I encourage people to do that. And so the people that have come into law enforcement, a lot of them have done ride-alongs or, you know, they hear the stories from their dad or their grandpa or their uncles or anything. So they already know what the criminal world is like. So it's not so much of a shock to them. As for me, it was definitely, definitely not a shock, but just a big eye opener. Like, Whoa, I had no clue that these neighborhoods even existed in our town or these people existed in our town. I was just completely blind of it. You know, it was basically, you know, the, the sheep pulled off of my eyes. Man, what was the, uh, the first like crazy altercation that you had to deal with? In law enforcement? Yeah. Um, the very first one. Oh, man. That's, I've, well, like, I, I I've guess been like in it about nine years. <laughs> well, okay. The most, okay. Well, the most memorable is very recently. So it was a domestic, it was a domestic call. It came out as a domestic battery at a local bar. And the original officers that responded to it ended up finding out that it was a different law enforcement's jurisdiction. Like the domestic battery had happened somewhere else, not within our jurisdiction. So uh, they referred it to the other jurisdiction. So a different law enforcement agency had to take over, but we still had the suspect's information. We knew the suspect was probably in our in our jurisdiction that night. And the night was just a crazy night. I ended up being all over the place in neighborhoods and stuff that I was not supposed to, that I typically don't cover or that I'm a part of. And so as we're clearing one call, that was crazy in itself. And I'm trying to get back to my section of of my jurisdiction. And this call comes out and we find out, okay, well, that sounds like the suspect from the domestic battery. So we get over there and we've had long history with this suspect of being violent and uh, fighting with police officers and obstructing and everything. So we get there and uh, one of the officers that's there with me, he's like, hey, if this is him and um, I recognize him, we need to put him in cuffs right away because this guy's a violent dude. And I was like, all right, cool. So he's, we get there, it's at nighttime and it's raining. There's just tons and tons of rain. The, the gutters are all filled with water and everything. And so he ends up being at the end of the car when we approach and the other officer motions to me, he's like, yeah, this is our guy. So I asked him the, the suspect, I was like, Hey, uh, can you go ahead and turn around to go put handcuffs on him? Well, there's me and two other officers at that time. So ultimately a fight breaks out 
with this one guy. We fight this guy for over four and a half minutes with just our, with our with basic, basically just trying to get cuffs on him. I mean, we're not throwing blows. We're not punching him. Nothing. We're just basically trying to get this guy into cuffs and he's trying to fight us the whole time. He's trying to swing him, swing at my other partner and all this other stuff. And it's the longest fight I've ever been in. And I remember thinking like halfway through, I was like, you've got to be kidding. This guy's still fighting three grown athletic guys full force i mean he did not let up for one second so ultimately after about like four and a half minutes we finally get cuffs on him and immediately after that he ends up passing away uh he ended up he ended up having some kind of medical issue or something and he ended up dying right there after we put the cuffs on him oh wow yeah so that has definitely been the craziest situation because that's like the last thing you ever think of is is when you're putting somebody in the cuffs is okay there's a good chance he might pass away or die that's not what you're thinking at all you're like okay i'm gonna put this guy in cuffs we're gonna take him up to jail and that'll be it you're not thinking okay this guy's gonna die on me and this guy was athletic he was a big dude um he wasn't old by any sense and um so it was definitely it, it was kind of a screwed with my head there for a little bit because it's like, because you didn't, that's, I didn't expect it. It was one of those things that come across and you're just like, that's the last thing you expect is like, this guy's going to die after we fight him. And people ask, well, I mean, well, you didn't really kill him. And I understand that argument, but like, say if you're driving down the street and you accidentally, somebody jots out in front of you, you know, on a bicycle or something, you run them over and they die. You killed that person by running over them. Yes, that wasn't your intention, but ultimately you driving that car resulted in him being killed by your vehicle. Right. Mm -hmm. Does that kind of make sense? Oh, yeah. And so I kind of relate that the same way to what happened with this guy. I mean, we fought him. I mean, he fought, he, he started the fight and we fought him to try to get just to get cuffs on him for four and a half minutes. And the end result was him dying. So by the engagement of the fight ended in him being killed, basically. So it, it was kind of a, a mind screw because, you know, I wasn't that's the last thing I'm thinking of is like this guy is going to end up being killed or, or dying from from us fighting him. And it's, I see it as a little bit different where when we draw our guns out and you've got a little bit of pressure behind that, behind that trigger, it's like, okay, I've already dedicated myself to this point where I'm just a hair bit of pressure off of this trigger where I will shoot this guy and he will die. It's like, you've already set your mind to that point. Like, it's like, it only takes one more action and I shoot him and he dies. Right. So do you, does you, do you kind of follow my thinking there? Yes. Um, years ago, I had a concealed carry permit, mm -hmm. and that's much what they told us in the class. Right. Was once the gun is drawn, the next step is you're either shooting that person or, you know, something else has gone down. But Correct. You know, so I'd imagine that that's much the same with police, that once that gun's out, like, shit is really serious. Right. Exactly. And your mind is already committed to that. It's like, okay, if I'm drawing my gun out and I have that finger on the trigger and I'm just a second away from pulling back, my mind's already made up that mind. Okay. This, the end result is this guy dies, right? So 
your mind's already prepared for that. Where when we fought that guy, my mind was not prepared for that. Like, okay, this guy's going to die, you know? So mm-hmm. that, that was kind of the mind screw with that, that specific situation. And it, like last week I was with, I have a training officer with me right now. And so we're in this bad neighborhood. And so it's like this small little area of condos and apartments. And there's like a small little house that sits in the middle of it. And it's really dark. And I've dealt with some really ugly people back there and really violent people. So I tell my training officer, I was like, Hey, we're going to wait until I get cover before we even think about going back there because, because I, of my history here. And he's like, okay, that makes sense. And so my cover officer gets there and my cover officer is well aware of the area too. And, and it's a welfare check out of all things. It's just a welfare check to see if somebody's okay. So we go and it's this, it's on the second story of an apartment complex and it's a small little narrow walkway, um, exterior walkway at the door. So I knock on the door. There's no answer, no noise. I knock again. And shortly after knocking, the door slowly opens and there's this guy standing right at the door with this huge hatchet raised above his his head what? with his right hand. So I quickly pull my gun out and start to draw my weapon at him. I was like, sir, can you kindly put down the hatchet? And he's like, oh, I'm so sorry. Yeah, yeah, sure. I'm sorry. I didn't know you guys were going to be here. So he puts the hatchet back down by the door. Holy and shit. Yeah. So it's still with the well within reach, right, of of for him. I was like, sir, do you mind stepping out so we can talk to you? And he's like, oh, yeah, sure. Just don't grab for the hatchet. Just step out here. And so he steps out, and I end up doing a, a, a Terry, um, a, you know, search, searching for any other weapons. And he was totally consensual of that and everything, and he didn't have anything else on him. We did the welfare check, made sure everything was fine, and everything was honky-dory at that. <laughs> it was just this guy opening the door with his hatchet raised above his head and my training officer's like whoa dude i totally understand what you meant by uh waiting for our cover officer to show up (laughs) (laughs) you're in hatchet territory what the (laughs) yeah hell (laughs) i know right yeah so it's that's i love that part of law enforcement because it's just so random I, you like i showed you that did you watch that one clip uh from southland i I watched them all in okay the guy who seems to be i've never watched that show before but like oh. it watching those clips really made me rethink that right because that guy who seems to be the main character in those right. like what an awesome character and, yeah uh, it was i watched them all this morning when yeah i was getting my kids their breakfast ready i just kind of had my phone propped up and i was just cracking up on, on some <laughs> and other ones i was just like holy like right so all those ones i shared with you are basically very uh, other than the robbery bank robbery one yeah, that one was like I, straight out of heat or something like that. That right. was crazy. Yeah, but all even that scene, all those are very, very realistic. All those scenarios happen on a consistent basis. And the reason I wanted to show you the bank robbery one is is not so much the bank robbery, but the fact that, okay, they're doing a traffic stop. And it's that scene at the beginning is he's doing a traffic stop on that Porsche. Mm-hmm. I don't know if you remember that. It starts off with him doing a, a traffic stop on a Porsche. And they're like in like Hollywood or Beverly Hills, I think is where they're at at that point. And it's this the smoking hot lady and uh, he doesn't cite her or anything. And he the other officer jokes like, well, did you at least get her number kind of <laughs> yeah, thing? You know? Yeah, I remember that. <laughs> so the reason I, I wanted to show you that is from directly after them going 10-8 or available, they get that robbery. And 
shots fired and officer down and just like all hell is breaking loose. And that's what law enforcement is. It's like one second you're like doing nothing. You know, you're doing a silly parking site to in the middle of doing your parking site because there's nothing else to do. You have shots fired two streets down from you. You have to scream over there or, you know, drive over there as quickly as you can. And I've had that where I was writing out a parking ticket and then all of a sudden I heard the shots, shots fired, a person in the street with a shotgun going down a certain street, need officers available. So I go screaming over there and sure enough, there was a guy walking down the streets shooting a shotgun. He, he had hidden before the time I got there. Uh, but it ended up turning into this massive manhunt that whole night. We had to get search warrants and all this other stuff. And, but I mean, that's, that's, I love that part of law enforcement where it's never, ever the same. Any given day is never the same as the next. And every second is, you never know what's going to happen. It's really exhilarating <laughs> and a lot of fun. If you're into that kind of stuff, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it sounds like it's definitely going to keep you on your toes. Yeah, that's for sure. And uh, I, that's what I love about being a field training officer, too, is because you get to see these guys experience it for the first time and see see how well they respond to it. And do they have the mindset to be able to handle it? Because you, you don't know. Nobody knows how they're going to handle that situation until they're in it. How am I going to handle a guy answering the door with a hatchet in his hand? You know, am I going to run? Am I going to shoot him? Am I going to talk to him politely? Or how am I going to handle uh, another officer screaming over the radio that he's been shot? And how am I going to get there? And what am I going to do? And, you know, or somebody walking down the street towards you and them firing a gun. What are you going to do? How are you going to respond? And so it's always, it's interesting to see the new guys and seeing how they react and uh, do they have what it takes to be able to address that threat or that situation, you know? Is there a percentage of, you know, people who are new to it that just, you know, like, or got to throw in the towel or, or whatever, for lack of a better phrase? Uh, I mean, it just sounds like a crazy job. <laughs> right. Uh, I would probably put it in a very low percentile, uh, percentage of people that finally get out on the street and they go, wow, what was I ever thinking? I should have never gotten into this. I'm saying like well below like 3% mm-hmm. um, get into it uh, and then finally realize uh, this was a bad mistake. You know, this is not for me. So. I mean that I mean that's part of like the one year uh, process of getting into a lot of agencies and stuff like that is I mean you got to be dedicated to it and then you have to go through a police academy and you go through scenarios and granted yeah they're not live scenarios but you're able to get that experience of like can I last a fight in a fight for 2 minutes because you go through that in academies you have to fight somebody full on force for 2 minutes and I lucked out and ended up getting a a golden glove college champ as the person I had to fight oh dude he he killed me he destroyed you me caught a few there huh oh yeah i was in so much pain i mean i had martial arts background and some boxing background but dude when the guy's a golden a golden glove in college and he knows what he's doing. He just, he boxed my head. Good. (laughs) I I sparred around with a friend in high school that was a boxer and he was just so fast. (laughs) There was no right. (laughs) Right. Yeah. I couldn't imagine getting stuck in a room with that dude for two minutes. Yeah. No way. No. So, I mean, I, I mean, that's, 
It's basically what it's been like in law enforcement for me. It's just, uh, it's been a great experience and stuff. And, um, you know, there's some things I've had some issues with and most of that stuff has what has to do more with, um, with not administration. What's the word I'm trying to think of? Um, the bureaucracy of it. And uh, I've learned a lot of that when I was getting my master's degree of how backwards bureaucracy is compared to like um, the civilian business world. And that was my background was the civilian business world of how decisions were made and how you financially prepared for things. Uh, Cause when I worked for my buddy in the flooring industry, that was kind of my job is I was the, one of his numbers guys. I was his, uh, I was his purchasing manager as well too. So I saw a lot of the numbers and a lot of the, you know, all the decisions you make are based on the financial, the financial numbers and stuff. And then when you get into a government agency and start working for a government agency, basically any common business sense is like thrown out. It, it just doesn't exist. And that, that becomes really frustrating with me at points. It's just like, okay, you guys are trying to solve this problem. If I was a businessman, I would do X, Y, and Z. And they're doing one, two, and seven, eight, you know, and like something that does not make any sense at all. And you're just like, why, why do you, you guys? Yeah. Why do you think that is? Is it because uh, they don't have to look at it as a business because it's just a government sector? Right. Or is it something else entirely? Yeah, it, it, it is exactly that. It's, it's a government entity. It's a government agency, and they don't look at things in a business sense. And like agencies, they get a certain amount of funding from their city or their county or their state or whatever it may be, and they work off of grants. And grants is weird because you got to basically deplete all that money that's given to you in the grant. So you're trying to expend as much money as you can, where in the business side, you're trying to save as much money as you can. So, you know, things like that just get so backwards. And yeah. um, when it comes to like basically out here out west and probably east as well too, Midwest as well, it's very law enforcement is still quite unless if you're in like a really big agency like chicago los angeles seattle or something like that it's still a good old boy system and merit if if you're really good and an excellent police office and your merit is outstanding that doesn't necessarily mean you're going to go anywhere in that agency it it's it's a lot of politics internal politics of who gets ahead and uh, whether they're a good cop or, or they just know the right people in the agency, you know, and uh, that becomes frustrating. Uh, it is what it is. Um, I don't see it ever changing anytime soon whatsoever. I mean, it's law enforcement is, it's very behind the times in a, just about everything you can think of. Um, I know you're kind of, uh, interested in like the te technology and law enforcement, Mm -hmm. And I showed you a couple of things, and those are things that I'd love to see. Um, yeah, that little lot. robot thing was excellent. Right. Well, I have some issues with that one. I actually gave that one to you as as a as a as a negative thing. I'm actually more interested. <laughs> did you look? Did you check out those cameras? The, yeah, the glasses the, one was really cool too. But the, okay. uh, <laughs> the little car one. I mean, it was excellent in that it was. I could only imagine getting pulled over 
and not ever having any prior knowledge that this was now technology being used. And you look in your little side view mirror and you see this little robot <laughs> yeah. with an iPad that's up. <laughs> yeah, level. basically. And it yeah, comes yeah. rolling up and then the cops talking to you. It's like, wow, am I that scary in my little Saturn? <laughs> right. You're right. You know, from it's you like, guys' perspective, you don't know what the hell you're walking up onto. I mean. Exactly. Yeah. And so, I mean, that thing was, I found it as hilarious because you got Johnny Johnny 5 coming up to your car asking <laughs> you for your was like that. <laughs> so you should have designed it to look like that just for nostalgia so people from the right. would have gone oh shit <laughs> right right so to explain it to listeners um basically what this company has designed is this little deployable robot that comes off the back of the patrol car so if I do a traffic stop on a car, the car pulls over, I deploy my my Johnny 5 from the from the rear of my vehicle. This robot comes off of the vehicle, it drives up to the vehicle I've pulled over, and basically this screen raises up to the height of the window and it's assumed that the driver is going to know what to do and roll down the window and talk to the screen and <laughs> <laughs> I'll be able to talk. So I stay in my patrol car the whole time, which is actually the worst place for a police officer to ever be is sitting in their patrol vehicle. So they're saying, okay, you stay in your car, which is actually the worst place you could be while this robot talks to the driver. And basically what the officer does is they have a computer screen in their vehicle and I can see the driver. And basically it's a video chat between me and the robot and the driver. And so I ask them for the driver's license, registration, um, proof of insurance and all that stuff. And so that's basically the, the description of what this, this technology is. And this is this thing is, is no, no criminal, like, you know, person who's made crime their life is ever going to do anything. They're just going to look at this stupid little robot and just drive off, you know? And so if they drive off or take off or they just like open their door and kick it over, well, they're going to drive off and now I'm stuck. Okay, well, I've got to recover this. Who knows how much a machine like that's going to cost? Well, and so, what would be the priority be there? You know, it's like right. recover the potentially expensive machine. Right. Or, or, you know, do you go do chase I go him after down it? this guy? You know, or yeah. do I maybe catch this guy? Maybe. Because that's still an unknown. Like, am I even going to be able to catch this guy? Right? So, that's still a big if. So, In, a department... What, speaking a department, of that real quick, let me yeah. take you on a tangent real quick. What, oh, yeah, what, no. what, what are your thoughts on that with the amount of technology that we have these days? Do you think that, you know, just everybody who decides to run should be pursued? No. <laughs> It, well, yeah, and I don't, like it's a, a weird pursuit. question because it's a slippery slope, you know. Right? No, it's well, if you know who the suspect is, and that's kind of it, each each situation dictates itself on what's going to happen. Right? It's it, it's never going to be the same. It's it's never a cookie cutter situation whatsoever in law enforcement. So if the suspect is known and you know they're going to be around town and stuff, it's to chase after him, like in a vehicle, um, you're putting a lot at risk. You're putting yourself at risk. You're putting other law enforcement officers at risk. You're putting the citizens at risk. So a lot of the departments back 
back here west are going away from the vehicle pursuits because there's too much danger involved with doing a vehicle pursuit. Now, if it's a high crime felony, like this guy had just murdered his family or his wife or something. Yeah, that and, needs to be followed immediately. Right, right. Every Basically, any agency is going to chase after that guy and get him no matter what, right? Now, if it's just over some warrant, traffic warrant or something along those effects, or some misdemeanor type of crime, there is no need to get in a vehicle pursuit on that guy, especially if there's any type of traffic or anything. Now, if you're on the backside of, of the town or something and there's no traffic and there's no immediate danger to anyone, a lot of the times the administration, the sergeants are going to let that vehicle pursuit go, like let them pursue that vehicle, uh, you know, just basically for the experience part of it and to to give those officers the experience of, okay, this is how, how well I do in a vehicle pursuit or, or whatever it may be and get that training in as well too. And, um, it also allows the sergeant and the other officers to know how well they do at calling out the traffic and how well they do under that intense, um, situation. So, you know, if you can do it in a safe, in a little bit safer environment where there isn't such an immediate threat, uh, of danger and stuff, um, it, it does have some benefits to it. And, and then hopefully you do end up apprehending the suspect and, and getting him in the vehicle pursuit. Now, foot pursuits are different. Uh, that's a whole different beast because typically you're out with somebody and you're talking to them and they decide, well, you know what? I think I can take, I can take off. I can get away from this cop. He looks like he's slow or something like that. And you get in the foot pursuit. So, the thing with foot pursuits, people are not going to tell you to stop the foot pursuit or for you to cancel the foot pursuit until they realize you don't know where you're at because you're constantly having to think, okay, where am I at in my foot pursuit? So you can tell the other officers, okay, I'm going down such and such street. We're turning south on this street. Okay, we're continuing south on this street. And now we're turning uh, east on the next street. And you got to be able to get those that information out of what street you're on, the the street number and stuff like that. But the second that it sounds like you don't know where you're at, that's where you start to kind of mind screw yourself and you start to lose um, your sense of, of basically your courage and confidence because you're like, oh man, I don't know where I'm at. So you, you kind of lose your confidence. So that puts you kind of at danger. So people, other officers will tell you to stop the foot pursuit or whatever. And also with the foot pursuit, you never want to chase after somebody that gets around a corner and you're not, you're not comfortable with getting around yeah, that corner. You be walking right into an ambush. Right. So to go back to that scene on, um, on Southland at the robbery. Mm-hmm. So there's the scene where they're at there. It's a, it's a bank robbery and the suspects are outside of the bank. The officer, as the officers are driving in, they're shooting at the officers with assault rifles. And it appears that one of the suspects that's firing with the assault rifle runs out of ammunition. And so he starts to run away from the bank. So one of the officers, one of the main characters in the, in the storyline chases after him on foot. Like we can't let this guy go. I've got to get him. So he's in this foot pursuit with the suspect, the bank robber. And he gets to that point where the suspect makes that hard turn around that, 
the corner of the building and he lose sight and he like that officer he does the right thing he stops and he like slows down like oh this is not good this guy could have had like a gun in his waistband or something yeah it could be just and, waiting over there with his yeah, gun drawn exactly and we get trained that all the time is like if you if they make a hard corner don't go around that corner you know you got to there's a different you've got to do different tactics instead of just running right after them because if the suspect knows what they're doing they've got another gun they're just going to hold at that corner and wait for you to pop around that corner and they're just going to they're going to basically put one right to your head um so you know that's a great scene um again from southland showing um how it, they do such an excellent job of showing what it's truly like out there and and in law enforcement especially at the patrol level so I definitely recommend that to anybody who really wants to see what it's like. I mean, there are some things in that show where I'm just like, there's no way that would ever happen. <laughs> <laughs> I remember uh, the first time I see saw it, I think it's like in one of the very first episodes, like one, like the second or third. So the, the two main characters, they get dispatched to a domestic, uh, domestic disturbance. And it's a house that they go to like all the time. And, and that's true in law enforcement, you will constantly go to the same houses over and over and over again for domestic, domestic disturbance, right? So they get to the house and the couple are seen arguing and bickering. And I don't think there's any, any um, battery or anything, or there wasn't any signs of a battery between the couple. And so the senior officer, the training officer basically tells the guy and the girl say, uh, okay, I want the two of you. Cause they're, they're, they're married. The guy and the girl are married. He's, he tells them, I want both of you to put your right hand on my badge. And so they do it. They take their right hand, they put it on his badge on his chest. And he goes by the power invested me in me by the, by the agency I work for, you are now both divorced and never to speak to each other ever again. And they bought it as true. <laughs> and I was like, man, <laughs> if I could have those powers, that would just be amazing because it would just resolve that continuous, like almost every other week call to a house for a domestic disturbance. But it seems like that. It's just like, okay, that's a little far, far reaching that that doesn't happen in law enforcement, but sometimes we wish it could. <laughs> It's weird when you see those sort of altercations between a couple. Um, the I'm, I'm lucky enough that my neighbors across the street have fights like that. Oh, probably like once a month or so. Yeah, and they do it out in their driveway, and so we can uh, hear it. Of course, I, I peek over my fence like Wilson from Home Improvement. I'm like, what's right. going on over there? <laughs> like, why do they do that outside? Like, I, right? You know, they're the Boo Radleys. That's what they do. Yeah. Yeah. It's just, <laughs> and it's such a high percentage of what we go to, we get called to is domestic disturbance is just huge, huge high volume of that. And that's, that's throughout all of law enforcement. That's not necessarily a local thing for me or through my agency. It's, you hear about that everywhere is, is domestic disturbance and uh, we're mandated. Like if there's any sign or sign or clue or indication that there was a battery were mandated by um by the federal government that we have to do an arrest we have to figure out who the primary aggressor is in that domestic battery and do an arrest i mean there are some 
there are some times where you can't do the arrest because you really can't because of the circumstance. You can't determine who the actual primary aggressor is, so you can't really do an arrest because basically you're doing an unlawful arrest um, because you're basically like playing um, um, a guessing game of who was possibly the uh, aggressor. Uh, it's best if you can get one of them to say, yeah, I started the, the physical fight of it. And th that's the best part. Or you look at like their his their criminal history. Has either of them ever been arrested for domestic battery in the, in the past? Uh, who has injuries? Who doesn't? What kind of injuries are they? Are they defensive wounds or are these, um, you know, a black eye and he's got cuts across the, uh, the top of his knuckles, you know? So it's like, okay, you can put, the puzzle pieces together and say, okay, this guy is, is, and we work off a probable cause, um, meaning, you know, it's, um, within reason that this guy was the, was the person who committed the crime. And we're not working on, on like the court level where it's beyond a reasonable doubt kind of thing. You know, we're working on probable cause. It's probably he is the one that committed this crime. Um, so that that's you get a lot of that experience um no matter where you're at in law enforcement with domestic batteries of trying to figure out who's telling you the truth who's lying to you you know typical thing throughout the united states for sure do you want to take a quick break yeah that's fine how long okay cool okay i'm back all right awesome you kind of want to start going over the subject lines that you wanted that you sent to me like um marijuana uh, militarization stop and frisk like the new york stuff uh sure we can go into that or we can go into the like kind of the media stuff whichever whichever you'd like doesn't matter to me okay um well marijuana has become pretty prim uh pretty big subject here locally because it's, it has been legalized in the state of nevada um now as a recreational drug it's been legal or it's been shown or it's been uh voted in as a legal substance and what we have alaska washington oregon california um nevada colorado of course being the first one maine and there's another one back east i can't think of it right now washington dc is it that no i don't think it's washington or, or maybe I I thought D.C. Had, had had it legalized, but... Maybe. There's another state, though, back east. It's right below Maine. Maybe Connecticut or something? I'm not sure. Well, a lot of them are trending that way, though. Yeah, well, 28 have legalized it in the way of medicinal use. And that's, I can assure you, that's just a stepping stone to legalizing it for or for uh, recreational use and i know that from from my experience here is i even talked to one of the city managers when we legalized it for uh for medicinal purposes i was like hey we're just this is just basically a stepping stone isn't it for it to become a recreational uh use and he straight up said, yeah, that's basically what it is, is because what happens is when a state legalizes it for the medicinal purposes, it basically puts the foundation down for 
um, the infrastructure to be built upon. So it allows the companies to come in that are going to grow the marijuana. And it allows the companies to come in that are going to basically set up the shops to sell it. And um, so it's broken. I don't know if you know much about uh, the business side of it. Do you know much about it? Just little bits from what I would have heard on different podcasts or read in articles, but my, right. my information is very sketchy at best. Right. So basically how it's broken down, and I'm assuming it's like this in the other states, but it's broken down into three parts. So you have one business that's the uh, cultivation. So they're the like growers of it. They're the ones that rent out these massive warehouses and actually do the grow of it. Now, after the grow, the plants are pulled and then they're transported to a processing company. So that processing company, they have nothing to do with the grow and they have nothing to do with the sell. All they do is processing in the way of either drying out uh, the cannabis and prepping it for your typical use of smoking it, or they're prepping it in the way of using it for food consumption, as in like the candies and the gummy bears and the brownies and the cookies and all that other stuff and the oils. So that's the processing part. And then after the processing, it gets transported to the final des destination of the, the sales shop or the distribution center. Uh, and so in, when it's at the medical, when it's just a medical facility, it's, it's basically a distribution center to those that have the medical cards and such. And ultimately that, uh, medical distribution center can turn into a place for sales of when it becomes, uh, legal for, um, um, for just anybody to use. So it's this three, three step or three tiered business system. And each part is a different business owned entity in itself. And there's tons and tons of money that goes into this. These facilities have exorbitant amount of security systems. Uh, I've, I have never seen uh, a building with so much security built into it as a, as any of those businesses, whether it's the grow warehouse, the preparation um, business or the sales uh, sales business. And as a law enforcement, we get to do walkthroughs and go in and make sure, you know, everything's the way it's supposed to be and check out their security valence. And where some of these shops are now, we rely on their surveillance videos to capture uh, surveillance uh, video of like the surrounding streets because it's ultra HD 1080p uh, recording systems that are oh, constantly really cool. on. Oh yeah. Constantly on. They have night vision and it's like, it's not like your hokey, um, uh, like home security night vision. Uh, it's like high quality, you know, military grade, um, night, night surveillance video cameras. And a lot of the ones, a lot of these places now that it's legal for, um, for the public or they're having to get armed security officers and stuff that are sitting in, in the store and outside of the store. So it, it's ridiculous how much security goes into these things. Um, so, I mean, we're, we're just 
kind of starting to experience that here locally in Nevada. Uh, we're nowhere near what it is like in Oregon. I'm sorry, not Oregon, but in Colorado. Um, but and I see, I see where there's, there's pluses to it. And I also see, I'm, I'm always that guy that kind of likes to see both sides of things. Typically, People think as law enforcement officers or police officers is basically one-sided. You know, we only see it as the law side of it. But because of my background, I like to see both sides of it. So, I don't know. Have you seen that thing on Facebook recently where they're trying to promote um, other states legalizing marijuana? Have you seen that on Facebook yet? Where there's a guy and he's sitting there with a bowl of marijuana. Okay, yeah, and it's like the Colorado just made a just passed a billion dollars in sales and then lists off all the things, the positive things that 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 tax revenue went to support. Right. Yeah. So, like, yeah, they talk about one billion in sales, one billion dollars that didn't go to drug cartel, and that that's a Mm -hmm. good point. I I totally agree with that. Yeah, it's cool seeing the you know like in Colorado that a lot of that went to schools and children's right. hospitals that sort of stuff and right and i think i read something that that they made so much money in the state that they actually everybody in colorado got a huge refund as a result that year or whatever too oh really i have not heard that yet um that'd be interesting to hear about that um like that like that little facebook thing it talks about uh, funding youth mentoring and and i don't know about that one because typically my experience is Funding or youth mentoring programs is always like a volunteer-based program, so I don't know what they're talking about in the way of funding that. But exactly I don't know. what programs that went to? Right. Yeah, it's like every youth mentoring program I've ever heard of. It's always volunteered work, so I don't know how that's being supported through uh, the marijuana sales. I don't know, but that's what they promoted on that thing, and and it does a lot of a lot of the revenues that they get go back into a substance abuse programs uh, for people that are on more addictive drugs like your heroin and the methamphetamines. And I mean, that's good. It's basically the government just rotating their money around. Um, it's basically, yeah, they're, the government's taxing it, but then they're just basically putting it back into to their own programs because a lot of those substance abuse programs those are all going to be government funded or they're actual government programs right mm-hmm. and on there i think they also promote like anti anti-bullying program um, school constructions was mentioned and then they they boast about money staying in america which i totally agree yeah the money definitely stays here in america as compared to being shipped back to um the drug cartels in mexico south america and in other places so I do see those points, but there are still some other sides of it that they're not of, of course, they're not promoting. One of the big ones that we see in the way of law enforcement is the shops, they are getting robbed. They are being held up at gunpoint um, for both the product and for the money, because a lot of these states are mandating that they can't, or they're not able to work with banks. So they're doing all their transactions with cash and there's that a makes lot. them a pretty ripe target. Right. There's a massive amount of cash being held in these businesses. And the reason is, is because you remember I was talking about how much security goes into these businesses and how it's like a three-tier business. Mm-hmm. There's it, That's a huge amount of cost, right, to do all that. So the end result of them selling the marijuana is there's they have to cover all those costs 
to do that business and on top of it the taxes that get put on by the state to 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 basically legitimize all this so you're like your typical one ounce bag of marijuana coming out of a shop is going to be at the very least like 400 bucks and then up to like 800 bucks depending on the product that you're getting well that's two to two to eight times more expensive than what it would cost on the street off of the like the black market so there's a huge sticker shock that goes into it when people go into these stores to buy the marijuana because they've been used like if they used it before they're used to paying a hundred bucks for an ounce yeah that's a really good point right so they're like oh okay a hundred bucks that's easy that's what they're thinking. And then they go in there and it's like at the very cheapest 400, what I'm going to pay 400 bucks for this now. Yeah. Just then they're going to go legal? back to shady Pete instead of going to a dispensary. Right. So the black market has this even expanding market now, like, Oh, now it's legal and everybody wants it. And I can either sell it for still a hundred bucks and still make my money uh, on the black market you know, and they're still keeping their customers because their customers don't want to go in there and pay 400 bucks when they can still get it on the street um, for a fraction of the price. And so the other aspect to this is, okay, so those people that go in and rob, um, do a robbery on a, on a, a sales place is they're getting all that cash and they're getting all that product, all that marijuana, and then turning around and selling it for the $100 an ounce where the shop was selling it for 400 an ounce. So will there ever be a median that comes between the two? Cause the argument is, is like, well, um, the two will flush each other out. And I, I, I don't see that quite happening. I don't see, uh, the government price is not going to come down because, uh, because all their costs, nothing within their costs are going to come down at all and the black market side of it i mean it's just typical business for them and there's no change to them right yeah that's a really good point yeah so that's where like a lot of we hear from colorado and stuff is like yeah this is one of our major issues is now we have to deal with all these robberies or dope rips or drug rips that happen where suspects they'll sit like a block down the street and they'll have uh, somebody else like look out at the store and they'll get a description of the car or whatever. And so they'll see somebody go in and buy, buy marijuana and come out. And they always have these real distinctive bags. Uh, so it, it's, it's, it, you can't mistake them as buying something else in that store. Obviously they went in there, bought marijuana, came out. So the suspects will follow that person and uh, if they're on foot, they'll just follow them on foot and then basically rob them for their marijuana two blocks down the street. Or they'll follow them home and then rob them as they're going into their house or oh, their that's place creepy. of business. Yeah. So people are getting followed from these stores. And just so that, you know, somebody can get their next ounce of marijuana or, or turn around and sell it. So that's, that's another increase in the crime that law enforcement seeing as well too. And there's a lot of 
other concerns that law enforcement has. Um, one of them is there's definitely going to be a danger, uh, an increase in danger to children, especially with the type of products they're making with like the gummy bears that are, that have the THC put into them and the cookies and the brownies and stuff like that. Um, people think, well, no, we'll be safe about it. We'll keep it. We'll keep it in the cupboard or whatever it may be. I'll tell you what, ever since it became legal, the very first night I went to 10 calls right at one, right after each other, one right after the other. And every single one of them had marijuana in plain sight. Like it's on the coffee table or they have a pipe with a loaded bowl sitting on the, uh, sitting on the chair all within children's reach. Yeah. That's just irresponsible. Yeah. And, but this is the thing is just like, you see it all the time. And I, I was thinking, okay, you might see it like once or twice, but it's seriously 10 calls, one right after another, where the marijuana is just laying out there in easy grab for a kid. Um, and then especially with like, if when they do the candies and stuff like that, a kid's not going to know that or dogs or animals, they're not going to be able to know. I mean, I've had my dog get into our Halloween candy, you know, chocolate. You think you have it tucked away enough but you come home and your dog's sick now right um so you know law enforcement has a lot of concern with that the dangers uh, the increase in dangers to the children um especially with the candies and such um and then also another concern with law enforcement is now we have to be retrained on duis because of marijuana with so many people being legal to to use marijuana they're of course they're going to drive just like alcohol you know just like any other um and they driving really under the influence a, they don't really have a test right now that's similar to like the way that you know you can blow into the the blood the, alcohol content yeah uh, the pbt meter. yeah it's called a pbt right now if you figure out a way that you can make a pbt machine that detects the amount of thc levels in in the blood you'll be a billionaire overnight <laughs> but uh that is one of the things that <laughs> seems a little faulty with the way that it's tested right now is you know depending on the how heavily you use it could stay in your system for up to what six seven weeks uh, I don't know if it's that long. Yeah, it probably can stay in your system that long. But the the question is, are you um, are you? It, it doesn't answer if you're high at that moment that you got pulled over. That just means right. that at some point in the last however many weeks that those tests are accurate for, that you would use somewhere in there. Right. And yeah. So that's something that's always just seemed like a little bit. It's like. You know, it's, there's obviously right. room for improvement there if they want to be prosecuting people for, right. for operating. And, and, you know, I think there is a big difference between operating on marijuana or operating on alcohol. But either way you put it, you know, if you're under the sub, under the influence of something, you probably shouldn't be behind right. the wheel. Correct. Right. And what what goes on with us and when we do a field sobriety test is to determine your your level of intoxication and are you capable of driving a motor vehicle due to your behaviors on scene? And so you're looking for clues and indications. Like if it's alcohol, you're looking for clues of indications of intoxication because they have slurred speech. They have red blood or blood shot 
watery eyes. Uh, they have the odor of alcohol on their breath. They're, they're unable to maintain their balance and stuff. And if a person is high or they're under the influence, they're intoxicated with the marijuana, they're going to show a lot of those signs. And another thing that goes along with a field sobriety test is part of it is we're trying to see if you can listen and understand a series of directions because when you do like one of the tests is a walk and turn test. So there's a series of steps that you have to do during the walk and turn test. You have to keep your heel and toe together. You have to take nine steps heel to toe on a straight line. Then you have to take a series of small steps and return taking back, return back to the same spot, taking nine heel to toe steps. You have to keep your hands down by your side. You have to count each step out loud. One, two, three, all the way until nine, right? So it's a long series of instructions. So if you're intoxicated, you're your brain's not going to register all those steps and you'll see it on, uh, on somebody who's intoxicated with marijuana and also on alcohol. They just, they're not able to put all those steps together and able to retain it in their head during the test. So they'll take nine steps and then they'll mess up the turn and then they won't return because they forget that they have to return back nine steps, even after we demonstrate it. Because we have to, we have to read the instructions to it, and then we also have to demonstrate the test to them, so that there's no question of what you need to do, right? But if they're intoxicated either with marijuana or alcohol, they're going to forget that stuff, or they're not, they're just not going to be able to remember it all the way through. And if they're above the legal limit in the way of alcohol, so you know they mess up the hill to toe, they don't do the hill to toe touch. Um, there's a series of things that you can screw up. So that's part of the test. And that's where when you do a field sobriety test on marijuana, though, that's what you're really kind of looking for is like, are they able to understand all these instructions? And you also look for all the other clues of impairment as well too on a, a, a DUI of marijuana is like, do you have the odor of marijuana on them? You know, did they just recently smoke marijuana? Uh, do they have bloodshot? watery eyes? Uh, do they have a slowed response to my questioning or is their speech slowed? Not necessarily slurred, but slowed down and uh, like monotoned kind of. So it, it's still all the same test. The only difference is we're not able to give them a PBT. But even on a DUI, I can still very easily do an arrest on a a DUI for alcohol without a PBT because you'll have people refuse to give the PBT. There's going to be additional charges brought against a person for refusing the PBT, but that doesn't determine if I'm going to arrest them or not. So it's the same exact thing for the marijuana, but there is some additional training that they want that, that uh, state agencies want um, the law enforcement officers to receive. And it has a lot to do with their eyes because a lot it affects your eyes when when you're intoxicated with marijuana. It affects your eyes in certain ways. So we have to receive that training. And there's additional governmental costs that are going to have to go into uh, training all of the law enforcement officers within a state um, to get up, up to par with that. So that's another drawback to it as well, too, with, with it. Uh, another one that I think a lot of people overlook is uh, the resources and the costs, uh, how much energy it goes into doing a grow, uh, especially, especially in the state of Nevada, because we have such severe climate, um, and weather 
is that you can't just like, it's not like California or Oregon where you can grow this stuff outside out in the mountains and not have to worry about anything here. You have to do it in warehouses under extreme um, controlled environments where um, basically they're, they're using hydroponics to grow it. And so there's a huge amount of consumption of water and a huge consumption of energy. So, I mean, a lot of states and local governments and stuff like that, they already have issues with energy, especially like in California where they have to do those rolling out, uh, rolling blackouts or rolling brownouts and stuff. And they already have an energy issue. And now if they're going to add this additional industry, that's going to be a massive consumer of energy. That's going to be another issue that finances. Somebody's going to have to financially cover that or some, some way that has to be resolved. Um, you also had asked, I think, did you ask me about like the jail issues with marijuana? Yeah, one of the benefits that you know that people always tout with legalization is that it's going to help um, ease the overcrowding problem in prisons. Right. Because one of those stats that's always bandied about is that you know there's like more people in prison for non-violent non-violent drug offenses than all the others combined. Right. And that you know maybe those people would be better off in some sort of treatment program rather than being tossed in yeah. you know jail with you know murders, rapists, that sort of. Right crowd where you know per- perhaps they're going to go in at one skill level and then come out totally more fucked up, you know, to where mm-hmm. they didn't get rehabilitated at all in the system. Right. Well, the last numbers that I saw in the way of marijuana, I'm being very specific in marijuana because I think those m- numbers come sometimes get uh, misrepresented because they'll throw other drugs in there um, to kind of boost those numbers. But in the way of the last numbers I've seen in marijuana, it's one in. 10 or I'm sorry, one tenth of 1% of people are in jail for marijuana. That's jail. Okay. So that's like your local um, jailhouse. So one tenth of 1%. So that's nothing really. And then the way of prison, it's um, three tenths of 1%. So we're talking very minuscule in the way of actual marijuana. And then those, those prison ones, those have got to be like, massive amount of trafficking marijuana charges because I don't, I I can't even fathom why anybody would be in prison for possession of marijuana. I don't even see how that would be possible. So, um, yeah, whenever there's data like that, I'm always highly skeptical of everything. I mean, I'm on the side, I'm on the side where I would like to see the war on drugs come to an end. I'd like to see, Uh, the legalization of marijuana. I don't, especially when you when you stack marijuana against alcohol. It seems like alcohol is far more damaging. Yeah, and the cat's already out of the bag on that one. Mm-hmm. And so, why are you going to lock people oh, up? Yeah. marijuana? I could understand, you know, if if you're some scumbag that's selling it to kids or something like that, then yeah, you mm-hmm. need to be in prison because you're you're not being a good person. Mm-hmm. But you know, otherwise, it seems like it. It just seems harm fairly benign to me. Right. And I, I see that argument very, very easily. You know, it's just I, on the law and sorry, I'm sorry, law enforcement side of it. There are some other negative effects that people have a tendency just to not know or they overlook, like the robberies of of the the uh, businesses and stuff like that. Um, you know, it's kind of a give or take kind of situation, I guess. Um, yeah, that makes sense. You know. Yeah, I mean, it's still it's still still out there on what the returns are going to be uh because like even with taxations 
on like cigarettes or uh, or tobacco or alcohol, um, you know, like fifteen to twenty billion dollars a year, are is made throughout the United States on taxes on alcohol. Um, but there's $200 billion a year that are pumped into healthcare and cr- the criminal justice system in the way of alcohol, whether it be DUI accidents or crimes that involve, um, alcohol and stuff like that. Now, I don't think it's going to be that bad. I agree. It's not going to be as bad when it comes to marijuana. I can tell you from my own personal experience, 99% more of my violent calls are going to be associated to alcohol before they are ever going to be associated to marijuana. Alcohol just has a whole different effect on the brain and it tends to reinforce the, the ego that, right. that bullshit part in your head that, that tells you, you know, yes, go for mm-hmm. it. You're awesome. Whereas it right. seems like, you know, from, you know, back in the day when I smoked marijuana, you know, it, it seemed to be something much more that would dissolve the ego. It would make you sit and question yourself. <laughs> you know, you wouldn't want to be the guy that would jump up on the bar and go, woohoo, you'd be the guy sitting in the chair going, I can't do that. What's everybody going to think of me? <laughs> right, exactly. Yeah, so. You know, maybe that's something that that society needs a little bit more of is putting right. the ego in check. But Right. Yeah, I mean, from my experience over eight years, eight years, almost nine now, very few of my calls, very, very, very few of my cases have ever involved marijuana as being the culprit or the reason as to why the crime was committed. Um, now, alcohol, on the other hand, completely different story. Um, that's well up and, you know, above 50% of the reason why I end up having to take criminal action on against somebody because they were drunk. So they end up beating their wife or they're drunk and they get, they decide to drive or they're drunk and they decide to break into some business or something along those effects. So, yeah, I definitely agree with that, that uh, alcohol is definitely a bigger, more uh, violent substance for everyone to have to deal with. That's for sure. Did you want to go over uh, militarization? You'd asked me, about that as well to the militarization of uh, law enforcement. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Now, yeah. Uh, traditionally that was always like a province of SWAT, which would be an acronym for special weapons and training, right? Yeah. Special, uh, special weapons and tactics. Tactics. There you go. Right. And yeah, so I guess the ACL, eh, sorry, ACLU has had a lot of issues with uh, SWAT and uh, the militarization of SWAT teams and stuff like that. And so I've got a couple of points that that I looked up. So like one of the points, um, I'll, I'll just read it here. Law enforcement has become too militarized with its helmets, shields, weapons, armored personnel carriers, tactics, uh, warrior mindset, and training. Well, the thing with SWAT, it's it's always has been a responsive element of lean, of law enforcement. It's not a proactive response. It's always a reactive response to what they experience out there. So when they start doing raids on a house or uh, they do a warrant, a search warrant on a house, they're being uh, they're being attacked with with assault rifles uh you know these drug houses and stuff that they do a raid on they'll have multiple people in those houses with uh with um 
with assault rifles ready uh, to fire upon the law enforcement. And then also you have your active shooter incidents or situations now where the suspects are arming themselves with multiple guns, high, high velocity rifles, military, or, you know, like your assault rifles and stuff like that. So that's the response to the, the suspects having that type of, of, uh, of weapon. So yes, they do have helmets to protect their heads and yes, they have shields to protect them from that high velocity, uh, um, round and, and you don't want to go into, into a, like, you don't want to go into a gunfight with a knife, right? You always want to at least match or better the other person, right? Yeah. So, of course, you want SWAT. You want your law enforcement officer to have weapons that are stronger and better than what the suspects have so that we can eliminate that threat or that suspect before they do any other harm to a, to to people in a business in a, an active shooter situation or kids. Uh, take Columbine. They, they had a... Um, um, assault rifles and stuff like that and uh an assault rifle round that's that's going to penetrate i don't know if a lot of people realize that but an assault rifle round is going to penetrate very easily our our ballistic vests uh it will go your through your vests it. are meant to stop small arms fire right correct so we're talking like nine millimeter 45 millimeter uh, the 40 round but a high velocity 223 round or Forbid they have like uh, an AK forty seven. Yeah, thirty caliber and, round. Oof. Yeah, I've been I've been fired upon um, by a suspect with an assault rifle, and that's a whole different situation because it's like, okay, this vest I'm wearing, I might as well just take it off and have a little bit more ability to walk around because that round is just going to go through it like it's nothing. Wow. So I didn't realize that. Oh yeah, the the vest does nothing for us when it comes to an assault round or like a two, two, three round. It doesn't help um, you with a knife or anything like that either. Right. Well, they, they do have some vests. Well, they do have vests out there now are that are, that are designed to protect you from a knife attack. Um, it, you have to call, you have to pay more for it, but they are out there. Uh, but that assault round, uh, the two, two, three round or something bigger, it, it, that, that's why we have to have officers with, the Kevlar shields and the Kevlar helmets and the assault rifles themselves, because the suspects, they arm themselves with, um, they armor themselves up with helmets and shields and stuff like that. So you don't, I mean, yes, we have law enforcement and the public has put their trust into them to do the right thing. And, you, you have to give them the right tools to be able to take out the suspects that have just this, the same amount of equipment. Does that make sense? Yeah, absolutely. Right. So, and so the next point talks about law enforcement uh, uses SWAT too often, especially during warrants. Uh, so where I work, I've seen law enforcement, I've seen SWAT used on an, on an average is maybe three possibly four times a year that, that's not a lot and when SWAT is used if they're going to be making an entry into a residence they have to have a warrant right they have to go 
before a magistrate, they have to go before a judge, explain this is the situation. This is why we have probable cause to believe that the suspect is in there with uh, hostages or with a certain amount of, 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 of methamphetamine or weapons or whatever it may be. So we have to go before a judge and, and, and plea with them saying, Hey, we need to use SWAT to get into this residence to search, to, to do a search warrant or an arrest warrant or whatever it may be. So it's a judge that's signing off on this stuff. It's not like SWAT's just going out and doing whatever they want to and, you know, (laughs) breaking the fourth amendment rights to everyone to go into these places. So, and they really aren't used all that much, not as much as people want to believe. Maybe that, maybe that's a knee jerk reaction from the public with the shows and the movies and you seeing SWAT used all the time in the movies and the television shows and stuff like that. I think the media puts it out there a lot and what people assume is the amount of, of law enforcement using SWAT is nowhere near to the actual numbers of how often we actually are using SWAT. Um, and then the next point that the ACLU brought up is there's uh, too little documentation and oversight of SWAT operations. Again, we have to go before a judge and tell the judge, okay, this is what we have. This is who we're looking for. This is what they've done. This is why we have to do a SWAT type entry a forced entry or a no knock warrant to arrest this person. And it's, it's a judge, you know, this is a person who's been uh, voted in or appointed by, by the people to make these critical decisions on, okay, yes, you guys need to go in there and do that arrest. So yes, it is very well documented and there's no oversight of it whatsoever, especially when you have judges that have to, you know, have to sign off on these things. And then they're accountable to explain those decisions later on down the road if any of that's questioned. Exactly. Exactly. And it's not like some sergeant, patrol sergeant out there is saying, oh, we better use SWAT. We have probable cause. Let's bring out SWAT and and kick in this door. We can't do that. I mean, the Constitution keeps us from doing that, thankfully, you know? Mm Mm-hmm. Um, they also brought up uh, SWAT development in itself as an act of violence. Um, Yeah, it is typically going to be a violent situation, but more times than not, uh, I've been on many situations where uh, SWAT has been called out and it's the negotiators who end up resolving the situation more times than not. I've only seen one incident where SWAT has actually had to make entry into a house and have the, the, the good old um, shootout with the suspect. Um, that suspect ended up losing, losing his life, but that's one out of eight years of almost nine years of service. It's typically a negotiator that resolves the issue. Uh, the suspects typically listen to the negotiators and either uh, step out of the house or turn themselves in or, or whatever. So yeah, of course the, the violence part is always glorified in the media and in TV and, um, in the movies and stuff. But I mean, there's like the one movie, the negotiator, a great movie. They actually did a really good job of, of portraying negotiations. And I, I believe it was based on true stories as well too. Um, 
but um, otherwise, it's the negotiators that do a lot of this and resolve those those type of SWAT callouts and stuff. And I think that was basically all that the ACLU had brought up uh, in the way of the concerns of the militarization of law enforcement and stuff. Did you have any questions about SWAT or any other anything else that popped up in your head? Um, I don't think so, but it, it did get me thinking on the question of just the amount of gun violence that we deal with in America these days. Is that, I mean, that's something that's always got to be in the corner of your mind whenever you're dealing with somebody that they could potentially have a gun on them. Right. So, oh, yeah. I mean, from the from a police officer's point of view, what is your take on the gun violence in America? And like, what what steps could possibly made? The way I look at it is... The cat's already out of the bag. There's already guns that people own, and so you can't go and say, well, we need to get rid of all the guns, because that just, right. in my opinion, that means that the criminals are the only ones that are going to have the guns. Right. Because there's a reason they're a criminal. They're not going to follow the law, so why are you going to yes. take average citizens yes. and turn them into sheep? Now, I had a carry permit for years, right? and it was weird walking <laughs> in public wearing like i had i had a, a Glock gun 19 that yeah i it was in the end it ended up being really heavy and i just felt fucking weird every time <laughs> i was walking around wearing it because it's like dude, yeah it's like or like you try to like i don't know how you carried it but like if you like drop something like your keys or something you tried to bend over to pick up your keys yeah and i'd be like and okay like, i oh, need man. to do this in a way so that you know the it doesn't pop out is it gonna pop right. out and i'm not gonna have some <laughs> soccer mom next to me in the bread aisle at walmart freak out when it's right. like oh, he's got no, a gun I, I have this because i'm a you know i'm a responsible citizen Specific. not right. because i'm a lunatic but right. um um, or some criminal who's about to rob Walmart. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. But, you know, I saw a lot of troubling things when when I was in that. And, like, especially in the concealed carry class, I felt like about half the people in there had no business at all yes. carrying a gun around. Because right. just based on the questions that they were, they would put their hands up and uh-huh. say, okay, so say I'm in the convenience store and I'm over in a side aisle. And some guy goes up and ra- and points a gun at the cashier. I can shoot him, right? And I'm sitting there and I just look at the instructor's face and he looks at this guy like, number one, this is the millionth time I've had to field this question in a class. <laughs> and number, and, but then the thing that really struck me was that he had a really smart answer for that guy. And he said, number one, you're morally responsible for every bullet that you fire. Yep. And your average gunfight's going to take place in a distance of seven yards or less. Right. Even with police professionals, the miss rate is huge in a gunfight. So as a civilian in a high pressure situation, how are you going to do and how are you going to handle it when you miss that guy and you shoot the pregnant lady standing behind him? Right. Yeah, no, it's a great point. Yeah. And as just like, why are these, like, why would you, why would you want to have to shoot somebody? Mm. You know, I mean, with, when I was carrying, it was more, you know, I was exercising a constitutional right. And um, right. At, at the time, um, it was in 2008, the, ho- the the town that I live in was flooded. And so uh-huh. we were one of the first people back in our house. I really hustled and busted my ass to get back in here. But yeah. it was weird living in a ghost town. And oh, so yeah. my wife was concerned and she was like, we need to look into, 
you know, protecting ourselves because there were there were lots yeah. of places getting getting broken into in the, the night because yeah. there's power tools, shit like that laying around everywhere. Yeah. And so I I I never just go into something lightly. And so mm-hmm. I did a lot of research. I fired all sorts of different types of guns. I found what I liked. I got proficient at it. Good. I got a carry permit. And in the end, the more research I did on it, I realized that I could be involved in a shooting. I could mm-hmm. be cleared of any criminal activity, but I could still be open to a civil lawsuit that in yep. the end is going to bankrupt me. A trial is going to drag my name through the mud because in this day and age, there are no heroes anymore. Right. No, yeah. and the media is out there to—they're out there to get a story, and if yeah. and gun violence is going to sell, and so in the end, I decided, you know what, I'm going to let my carry license lapse. I'm not going to renew it, and um, you know, still got a handgun. I just don't carry it around with me all the time. Yeah, but um, no. Uh, how? What are the laws out there? I mean, it's different for every state. Like, are you able to carry it inside your vehicle, like loaded, without the CCW? No, no, you need to, Iowa, for the most part, when I got my permit, it was a kind of a May issue state in that you needed to come up with good reason and and then the sheriff would have the final decision on whether or not you were allowed. Got it. But then right soon after I got mine, Iowa became a shall issue state. And then the way that the new people were telling me was they didn't even have to pass a range requirement to get a carry permit. I th- oh, I thought that that was very, very irresponsible. Oh, totally. And, yeah, for a CCW, yeah. Mm, it, well, just some of the crazy shit that you see at a gun range. Because you right. know, during that time, like I was into guns. Like I, <laughs> I think I was subscribed to seven different magazines. <laughs> you know, I mean, in, I was a voracious reader of everything I could find that had to do with it. And you know, because I don't, I don't get into things lightly. I want to know everything I can about it. I want to know all the, understand the nuances, and um. That's meant I spent a lot of time at the gun range and I met some of the coolest people that you'd be standing next to me and you'd be like, holy shit, man, is that a Smith and Wesson? Like 1100, like 44 mag. And the guy's like, damn right it is. Do you want to shoot it? And it's like, oh, you're my (laughs) new best friend. Thank you so much. Uh, Or all this one guy showed up one time and he pulled out this case and he unzipped it. And it was, I, I looked at my buddy that was with me and I said, that's a dragon off SVD. That's a Soviet sniper rifle. Oh, man. And my buddy goes, how do you know that? And I'm like, Metal Gear Solid 3. <laughs> <laughs> and so the guy starts laughing and he goes, hey, I'll let you shoot it. And I said, oh, you're shit, Oh, man. yeah. Oh, so yeah, nice. he let me he let me fire off like five ran- five shots downrange with it. Oh, it was, it was awesome. But, nice. Uh, or, but was then it sighted? He, uh, Did yeah, he, he yeah. had it scoped and everything? Oh, he had some fun toys too. Yeah, he had that oh, thing nice. sighted. And well, he had a Mosin Nagant, you know, that uh, Soviet, Soviet area. Uh, Soviet era carbine, mm. and so it was the shortened down one. So right. when you'd fire, you know, it was a seven six two round. But when you'd fire it, uh, like a, about an eighteen inch uh, muzzle flash would oh, come out the end. So loud! Oh, it was so much fun to shoot. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. but, you know, those old Soviet rounds—they were just packed with salt, and so yeah. you'd shoot those guns, and you'd have to go home and clean that gun like five times. No other. Let yeah. it sit in the closet for a week, and then clean it again. <laughs> and uh, such yeah, a let the oil use. break yeah. it down more. Yeah. <laughs> but um, the, you'd you'd meet those great people at the range, but then you'd meet the idiot that showed up with a toaster to shoot. Right, and be right. Like, it'd be like, oh fuck, that's right. The law covers you too. You get to have a gun too, you moron. Right. Uh, we'll see. <laughs> it's, it's in Nevada, it's. I mean, I, anybody can go in and buy a gun just as long as they meet the Brady, uh, Brady requirements, the Brady law. 
their background check. Anybody can go in and buy it as long as they're not an ex-felon if they've never been convicted of a domestic battery. And they can walk out the store, load it with full capacity, one in the chamber, walk to their gar, car and put it in their center console. Totally legal. Yikes. Yeah, totally, totally legal. Uh, it's not considered CCW. It's That's how they can carry it. I remember in high school, kids at high school would show up in their trucks uh, with shot, loaded shotguns hanging in their back windows on their pickups because a bunch of us had old, you know, Ford Ford pickup trucks, you know, single uh, single cab, and you'd have the gun rack on the window, and you'd you'd throw your your shotgun, and after after school you'd meet up with your dad and go out pigeon or pheasant hunting, and uh, that was totally fine, totally legal, no issues there whatsoever. I mean, you're it's a loaded shotgun on school campus. And there was no issues with that. And that's just how the state of Nevada is. Um, you can, you know, I'll, there's been plenty of times where we've pulled over, you know, thugs, I mean, known gang members, and they've got guns in the car that are loaded. And we, we don't have any charges on them. It's because they have the legal, lawful right to possess that gun loaded in their car, uh, according to the state, uh, Nevada state law. So it, that's, it does, we have a lot more to be concerned about here in Nevada because it, and it, we also have open carry, um, law as well too, where you can strap a gun to your side of your, your, your hip and walk around and Walmart with a loaded gun on your hip. And does that it's cover totally those legal. crazy people that'll like throw an AR on a shoulder sling, oh, yeah. throw it over their back and then go shopping in Walmart? Oh yeah. We get those. Yeah. We get and those. Weird. We now, get them that- walking down the street. They're basically a lot of those guys. They're just trying to rope in law enforcement and try to have law enforcement do something against them. And basically, we don't we don't take any action on them until we see them commit some other crime. So if we see them walking down the street and they decide that they're going to jaywalk with the assault rifle strapped to their back, we're not stopping them for the assault rifle. We're stopping them for the pedestrian law that they just broke. And if we end up having to arrest them, then of course we can't book their their assault rifle into the jail with them. We have to collect it for safekeeping, and then they have to come back to the police department and get the assault rifle back from us. But um, but yeah, we get that kind of stuff all the time. The the, the nut jobs that just want to kind of push push the envelope with it. That's got to make it a freaky doing a traffic stop in a state like that. It is. It, I mean, it gets hairy sometimes because you'll be out with somebody and they'll tell you. Because I mean, when you run, when you run somebody's name, like their driver's license, um, with dispatch, dispatch will be able to see if they're CCW, like if they have the permit. And people will typically tell you when you approach the car. They'll say, "Hey, just so you know, I'm CCW. I currently have my weapon on the inside of my jacket or whatever." Yeah. And I just, I that just was always tell my them. plan when I carried, but I never got pulled over. Good. In all the time <laughs> yeah, I was carrying, but that was always my plan that my hands yeah. would stay on the steering wheel. Right. And say, officer, I want to inform you that I'm a CCW holder. You know, I have a pistol. It's in my center console. Right. You know, that yeah. sort of so, stuff. But So any listeners out there that are CCW, do exactly that, and the police officer will be very thankful <laughs> that uh, you tell them exactly where that weapon is at and just keep your hands on the on the steering wheels. And But here in the state of Nevada, uh, it, they don't have to be CCW to have that gun loaded in their center console. So I've had people tell me, 
because even though that they aren't CCW, they'll say, Hey officer, uh, just so, just so you know, and that we're clear on this, I do have a loaded gun. It's in the glove box. Uh, it's a, and then they describe whatever gun it is, a, a 40 cal or whatever. And I'll, I'll just basically, you know, kindly and politely tell them, okay, thank, thank you very much for that information. I just want you to keep your hands on that steering wheel and out where I can see them at all times. And more times than not, you know, they're, they're cooperative with that and they don't give me any issues. Um, the scary part is when you, when you do arrest them and for whatever it may be, uh, like they have a warrant or DUI or something else. And we have to do an inventory search of the vehicle before it gets towed. And when you do that inventory, that's when you find a gun that was right underneath the front seat. And you're like, man, dude, I had no idea that gun was in there. And this guy knew he was going to go to jail because of that warrant. And at any moment, he could have easily grabbed that gun and jumped out of that car shooting. So that's when you're just like, oh, man, that that could have been – that was a, a, a sketchy situation, you know, where you're you, – you kind of reevaluate everything again. <laughs> so, yeah, it's definitely a different situation out here in the wild, wild west of Nevada. <laughs> Which brings up another thing that I just thought about in the way of the marijuana. Um, when um, when we arrest somebody for marijuana, or when we arrest somebody and they have marijuana on them, uh, we can't book. So, like, typically, like, if I arrest somebody and I take them up to the jail and they've got, like, a pack of cigarettes on them, right? It goes into their personal belongings. And so, when they get out of jail, they get their personal belongings. So, they're, like, wallet, their knife, their pack of cigarettes, their ID, their money, and all that stuff. Well, the, th the issue that the jails are running into is that a lot of the jails receive federal funding uh, for, for their facility. And they cannot, because they're federally funded, they cannot book in the marijuana because at the federal level, marijuana is still illegal. Yeah, that's a good point. So there's this kind of catch-22 situation like okay well to me as the local police officer the marijuana is legal and it should technically be able to be booked in with their personal belongings because they legally and lawfully possess that marijuana but the jail is telling me no you can't because we can't as a jail accept it because we're fairly funded and if we and if we do we could lose that that federal funding so then what we have to do now as law enforcement officers, we have to take it back to our police agency and book it into our evidence for safekeeping. So now that person that was arrested for a warrant legally had marijuana on them has to go back to the, the agency that arrests them and try to get that marijuana out of, out of that uh, evidence. So it, it becomes problematic, you know, if they get arrested and and now they have to go back and do all this other stuff with just to get back their legal um, legal ounce of marijuana. So that was just something else that kind of popped up into my head. When we were talking about uh, talking about that subject. Um, do you think that there should be any sort of more stringent gun restrictions in a state where it's like as open as it is in Nevada? Uh, more stringent laws, I, I just don't see the worth of it. I, we don't have the issue. We don't have any issues with the way Nevada law is now. Yeah, it becomes a little bit more dicier and 
in scarier situations as a law enforcement. Uh, the argument has always been, you know, the states that allow open carry and allow, uh, you know, basically the liberal the liberal possession of firearms where, you know, can, you can just about do anything with the firearm other than carry it on your concealed on your person. Um, the argument is, is those are the States that have the least amount of gun violence as compared to like New York, where you have these exorbitant amount of gun laws. And then they end up being the States that have the most, uh, or the most violent, um, most violent crimes. With yeah. That's kind of like Chicago, right? I mean, they have right. extremely stringent, gun laws but they also have horrendous gun violence oh they do it's crazy they i was looking at numbers one day they have more homicides by gun violence than third world countries in civil war have in deaths like in like south or south africa and stuff there's more people that die in south chicago than a country i can't remember which country but it was in civil war and it was a straight on, straight out civil war, and less people died in that country than than there were people that were killed by guns in Chicago, in wow. South Chicago. I was like, that's just ridiculous. And they do have some of the most stringent um, gun laws in the entire United States. So it's like, does it make sense? It doesn't calculate out, right? Yeah, exactly. Where, where you've got Las Vegas, you've got you've got Reno and Tahoe and Elko and I mean some fairly good sized state or cities, nothing compared to like Chicago, but per capita, we don't see that type of gun violence because the argument is, well, the criminals aren't going to do anything because now they're afraid that everybody else has got a gun. And I can kind of see that. It's kind of like, like who would be dumb enough to commit gun crime in Texas? Right. (laughs) Exactly. Rob a store or something, you know? (laughs) Right, exactly. Um, because you're, that criminal is going to be afraid, well, if I break into that house, they probably got some guns, and they probably have pretty quick access to those guns, and they probably know how to use them. You know, So they're less inclined to do that crime or that robbery or that house burglary because they have that fear in them as compared to like in New York or Chicago where they're like, okay, nobody has a gun other than the criminals. So there's a good like uh, – I'm, I'm, I have a – better chance of being able to do this crime without getting shot because because of how strict the gun laws are in that state. Um, what was your take on uh, New York's stop and frisk policy in regards to trying to get guns off the street? Yeah, so they started that off in like, was it 1991, I think it was? Um, well, from what I understood, it was like more of them just trying to get crime rate down altogether, right? Is that the same subject as what you're talking about? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So, yeah, they really promoted um, proactive policing with – basically, they had a lot of hotspots in, in New York, New York City, and stuff like that where they're trying to address the crime rates there. And, um, again, a, a, a Terry stop or a stop and frisk – um, there's multiple things that have to occur for us to legally to be able to do that. Now, the difference is, is like they were being told to be proactive with doing this, go out there and, you know, proactively look for suspicious people doing suspicious things. And let's try to get these guys or these criminals, um, 
you know, hooked up on their crimes. And um, so they were promoting, that's where like, um, uh, I can't think of the term right now, but basically just proactive policing is compared to reactive policing that like Seattle has to do now where it's more reactive policing as compared to proactive policing. Um, What you mean? Yeah. So New York, they ended up putting a lot more officers out on the streets and uh, basically walking their beats as compared to driving their beats and stuff. So there's a lot more interaction with the citizens and you're able to do that in a city like New York um, where everything's within walking distance. I mean, it would be really hard to do that. And basically, well, you could probably do that downtown Vegas for sure, but like in a smaller town or any suburb, you can't really do that. Um, So the, the atmosphere and the environment of New York is really good for that proactive policing of getting of getting your police officers out on that street and making those contacts with people. And it's really easy to, if you're on a foot pursuit, it's easier to look for suspicious activity as compared to being in a patrol vehicle because you're very noticeable when you're sitting out in a patrol car, right? You, you'll see a patrol car a heck of a lot sooner than you'll see two guys walking down the street that might be cops and you could sit in a store and look across the street and watch a suspect as they're doing some type of suspicious activity and make contact with them. Once you have that reasonable suspicion um, that they're, that they're up to, that they are committing a crime um, that they just committed a crime that they are committing a crime or about to do a crime because those are the, those are the things you need. You need that reasonable suspicion to make that contact with that person. Right. And so once you have that reasonable suspicion, then the officer can make contact with them. And, um, but then you still have to have reasonable suspicion or reasonable belief that they might have a weapon on them. Now, if they're standing there, if you make contact with them and it's a hot, muggy day in August, downtown New York, and all they're wearing is a tank top and some baggy shorts, it's going to be really, really, really hard to articulate that you have reasonable suspicion that they have a gun um, on their hip when you can plainly see that there isn't a gun. So you're not, by law, you're not going to be able to stop and frisk them and check them for um, for a weapon, right? They've got to have baggy clothing on. They have to have multiple layers of clothing to where, you know, they could easily conceal it to where you can't see it. And you have to articulate their their behavior. Like they keep on checking their side with their with their elbow, like like they're trying to see where that gun is at, or they're trying to keep that gun pressed up against their body so it's not noticeable, or you see a bulge in the clothing. Yeah. So you got you have to have those things for us to legally do the search of them. And 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 it's not like a search of like going into their pockets and stuff. The only thing I can do at that point or any law enforcement officer can do at that point is basically pat down their exterior clothing to check to see if there's anything that feels like a gun. Like I'm not allowed to start diving into their pockets or um, checking the interior pockets with my hands. I'm just doing like a, a basically a methodical search of just patting down their clothing to make sure that there's nothing that feels like a gun to me. And then once I've, once I've checked them and I was like, and I feel comfortable, like, okay, they don't have a weapon on them. Then I tell them, Hey, go ahead and relax. 
So, um, so I don't see that there were any issues because new NYPD still had to follow all these same, um, constitutional, um, things in regards to, uh, um, a stop and frisk or a Terry, a Terry stop. Um, you've got to have that reasonable suspicion that they are or about to, or just have committed a crime. You have to have reasonable suspicion, um, or be able to articulate why you would have to search their, uh, do a search of their person for any weapons or anything like that. And, um, I mean, the end result for them is with all that huge amount of uh, proactive police work, they ended up reducing their homicide rates, their crime rates uh, dramatically. And they had a huge, um, huge turnaround and, and bringing down their crime rates. So, and I'm, I'm totally cool with everything that happened. Uh, I, I know the ACLU or, uh, I think it was them. They came out and basically said, well, no, they were, they were specifically targeting certain, certain minority groups. And it's, it's not that law enforcement does not go after certain minority groups. They go after what I said at the beginning, hot spots. It's, it's, these are the spots where we get high, high calls, of criminal activity or law enforcement sees a high, um, high trend in crime. So of course, those are the areas that they, that they're going to patrol a lot and put more emphasis on. Into those areas just sometimes happen to be, you know, more, you know, urban where you're going to see more, you know, <clears throat> black Americans. Yeah, I mean it's it's it all depends. It it all depends on where you are you are in the country, what what city you're in. Um like in northern Nevada, um the black population is very very small as compared to southern um southern Nevada in Las Vegas and stuff. Your um African American population is a lot bigger there, so you're going to see a higher rate of crimes being committed by by African Americans or more African Americans. Um, I'm kind of wording that wrong. Um, well, like you're for, gonna see, well, like for instance, on, on the south side of Chicago, that's where a lot of the more you know economically pressed communities are, where a lot of this violence is happening, right? Mm-hmm. And you know, I mean, it's not all black people that are in there. There's plenty of right. you know. I mean, it's going to be a mix of anybody that's. You know, not everybody's given the same roll of the dice, and there's right. going to be a lot of people that, through various, you know, structures, whether it be economic or you know just what society puts on people, there's going to be some people that, by the roll of the dice, you might get born in a place where it's going to be really hard to get out of, and Correct. so the options that are around you are going to be very different, and right. and so maybe you know these problems don't stem from a racial issue, but more from an economic issue. Oh yeah, totally. I totally agree. Yeah, it's definitely more of an economic issue before anything else, and um, and sometimes that's in a community that is dominantly African American or a community that's dominantly Hispanic or dominantly white. It, I mean, you can run the gamut. It all depends on where you're standing in the United States. That is on, very true because you know, growing up. 
and you know, I grew up outside Cedar. I grew up outside Cedar Rapids. Cedar Rapids, yeah. Iowa, is like the second most populous city in the state, and it's small fries compared to a lot of a lot of other places. But you know, I grew up in a small town outside of it, and if I look back to all the times that I've been around people that have freaked me out, it's been white people. Right. That's just <laughs> what I grew up around. You know, right? I grew up yeah. around a lot of, you know, for lack of a better term, just like fucking crazy redneck people that you know they might just you know they just got a different take on the world and once you kind of figure out where they're coming from then you can kind of deal with it and maybe dance your way out of certain altercations and whatnot but you know and now we you know we live in the world where there's so much fear being just tossed around freely and you know right now it's in vogue that you know oh we must be afraid of the muslims and, right. and it's like, well, yeah. you know, when, and you, it's, when you look at the big data, there's billions of them in the world. Right. And if you can accept the fact that there's crazy white Christian people that are just as fundamentalist mm-hmm. and nutty. Oh, yeah. And, you know, and I separate that from the Christians like like what my grandmother is. And, you know, uh-huh. like I look at her faith as like a very wonderful and beautiful thing. And it's right. in no way fundamentalist. And I can separate that from, right. say, a, a Christian guy that's going to burn a cross in somebody's yard. Yeah, and, um, exactly. Or become like the constitutionalists because they're really fundamentalist, um, and we—that's some something that law enforcement has a lot of problems with. Are the constitutionalists that live out in the the compounds and stuff like that? Um, you know, they they feel like they don't have to answer to police officers. They have to. They'll only answer to uh, deputies, or they'll only answer to the sheriff specifically. And they give us a real hard time saying that we've unlawfully detained them or have stopped them, and they have all this jargon that they put on it. But a lot of them are these like, um, like. You kind of said the wacko um, fundamentalist fundamentalist yeah. Christian group, and it's like okay, that's that's nowhere near what Christianity is about. But that's, that's what it seems like to me. You know, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I'm not, I don't, I don't really have a faith that I strictly follow. Yeah. But, um, uh, y- years ago, I went through the uh, RCIA. My wife's Catholic. And okay. I went through the RCIA, and so, you know, I went to church every Sunday for a, right. a little over a year, because, yeah. you know, we'd, I'd, I'd sit, I'd go to Mass, and then when they do the Eucharist, I'd go down into the basement with the other RCIA candidates, and, mm-hmm. you know, for lack of a better word, we'd talk about Jesus. Right. And, you know, I mean, I met some really wonderful people, but it, it just never had that stirring in me that yeah. hooked me, but, you know, I can, I saw a wonderful side of the Christian faith that I don't always see represented oh, well, by the media, right? By the media. And that, and that yeah. brings me to the next point is the, the media is there to sell a story. And so they're right. going to sensualize, sensualize things. Yeah. Yeah. Sensationalize. 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 Yeah. <laughs> sensualize. Like, <ooh>. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but you know, I mean, co- coming from the law enforcement side, that's got to be very frustrating seeing the way that they can you know potentially twist a story just to sell it yeah Uh, most you'll find if you ask around a lot of cops a lot of law enforcement no matter what type of law enforcement it is none of them watch media uh we'll get the information that we need that's pertinent to our job through emails through 
government agencies, um, through other uh, through other agencies, basically just swapping information and stuff like that. Uh, that that is actually pertinent to our job, but we never watch. Uh, the majority of law enforcement never watches the news. They don't watch media. You know, uh, I mean. W- they will they'll watch TV shows and and movies and stuff like that, but uh, any kind of media outlet and stuff like that, they just do not watch it or read it or anything uh, because they know how tainted it is and how um, slighted it is and how it just portrays us as this as this ugly governmental agency that's out to uh, take everyone's rights away and that. You know, that we're in these gun battles with other ethnic groups and that we're just out to shoot them all. And, and, and you know, the list goes on and on. I mean, we've, we all see it on the media, um, all the time. So, yeah, most law enforcement officers, they, they just get sick of it and they just basically take it out of their life because it's, it's junk to us. It doesn't mean anything to us. It doesn't have any bearing on what we do as, as our career. And it, it actually keeps us, um, it keeps our minds a little bit more sound and, uh, responsibly reactive to the calls that we're on. If we're being reactive to the media and how the media responds, or represents us or portrays us, do you think a cop is going to be doing the right thing if we're going to be reactive to how the media portrays us? Probably, we're probably not going to do the right thing. We're we're, going to be mad. We're going to be angry and um, probably not addressed the situation as, as, as a, as a just, or address a situation or a call or a suspect in a just way. Um, If we, buy into the media hype uh if we keep our minds clear and free of the media and all of its hype and stuff then we're able to make more of a sound just decision on what we on if we're going to do an arrest or um you know uh, how we're going to address somebody that might be aggressive towards us um you know, the media wants to put out, put it out there that if somebody becomes aggressive with an officer, the officer is just going to shoot them. That, that's not it at all. I mean, most times we want to do everything that we can to de-escalate that situation. But at the same time, keep it in our minds that if this guy reaches for a gun, the game's, the game totally changes, right? Uh, yeah, absolutely. But the media wants to put it out there. If the guy even like swings at us, we're going to shoot him. But that, that isn't the situation at all. I mean, there's a lot that goes into uh, our split-second decision on us having to pull our gun out and shoot them. Um, you know, whatever the situation is, is, you know, if if we get into a physical fight with them, and during that physical fight, you know the person has, uh, has reached for your gun or has been able to defeat the safety mechanism on your holster to where your gun is now loose and you see them or you can feel them or know that they're trying to get a hold of your duty weapon, that their, their intentions is that they're going to get that gun and shoot you and kill you. So you already know in, their mo- in, in your mind that this guy, he wants to kill me. 
So how am I going to respond to that? So you have to do whatever you can to fight your way from that guy um, to get some distance from him or be able to get your gun before he gets it and then have to resolve it um, by either shooting him or, or whatever it may be. So, you know, it's, it, I think it's best that law enforcement officers do stay out of, stay away from media just so that they don't get caught up in it because it, it, it's such a poor portrayal and, uh, slighted, um, um, slighted representation of, of who we are and how we react to things. Well, what do you think of the media portrayal when it comes to like TV and movies? I, I get it. I get media and TV and, you know, they, they're out. That's a business of, you know, there's the TV shows out there that, uh, what's the, there's a TV show out there now where it's basically, you've got your, your crooked cops and stuff like that. And that's just, those are stories and, you know, anything can be turned into things like that. I mean, you have medical TV dramas where, you know, um, what's the Seattle medical. Oh, is that uh, like Grey's Anatomy? Yeah, Grey's Anatomy. I mean... I can't believe that's still on the air. <laughs> is it still running? I, 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 I don't think know. it is. My wife and I watched it. <laughs> like, Okay, honest to God, the first season was really good. <laughs> oh, yeah. I, and the I second it. season, it got a little more ridiculous, and it just kept getting worse and worse. And I think it was somewhere around the fifth season, I looked at my wife, and I'm like, can we please just stop watching this? <laughs> <laughs> right, because it gets so ridiculous, it's right? Like, and you know, you know it's not true and that stuff doesn't really happen and you know like the the csi um reaction in court um, that's a really interesting one to me yeah i'm, I'm glad yeah. we got to that yeah so we do see that where so you yeah, kind of explain what that what that means okay so when csi las vegas came out and then what was her csi miami so oh, there these was shows, a whole bunch of them <laughs> right yeah so these shows uh, portray um, the evidence teams, the criminal criminal scene investigators, I guess is what they break it down as, as these investigators going out there with this massive amount of technology and being able to do these crazy things with figuring out who the who the suspect is and how it was committed and what weapon they used and what vehicle they drove up on the scene with and by analyzing tire patterns and how deep the tire is set into the mud and none of that stuff exists oh, the it's one that, all the one that always cracked me up is that no matter what surveillance footage they found they were able to zoom in on it and it's like oh dude, yeah and yeah if, the enhance if, if you've ever, yeah <laughs> enhance. Yes. but no i mean if, if you've ever tried to zoom in on anything on your computer you know oh. that's like pixelates like, out it pixelates oh, yeah. out but that never happened in there and so basically oh, no. it slanted all these juries to where they're sitting like listening to all the facts and the evidence of a case and they're like why aren't i seeing fantastic evidence here right yeah where's where's the enhanced video surveillance and where's the uh the pictures of uh of them spraying that liquid that shows where all the semen and blood is at. And it's that stuff does not exist. It, not in the way they portray it. You know, yes, there are things that we can do that kind of do that, but not to where it's like glowing, like 
like a starry night. You know, there's where all the blood's at and all the semen and all that stuff. It, no, it's nowhere close to that. And but the but the the jury thinks so. They think, well, I saw it on CSI, so it's got to be true. You know, and no, it's nowhere even close to that. But I'll tell you what, when uh, when they call a DNA expert onto a stand. That is the quickest way to lose a jury because they have to explain the whole science and theory and why they or all their schooling and stuff on how they became a, a, a scientist in DNA specializing or whatever it is. Man, I've sat there and listened to uh, a DNA specialist um give their testimony and i mean i'm in the field and i you know i'm part of this career field and i have some kind of basis of what they're saying but even me i was like dude i am so lost and i have no idea what they're talking about even though i'm the one that collected the evidence you know (laughs) (laughs) and uh you can just look at the jury and they're just like just falling asleep in their chairs well it's you might as well be just be talking a different language that doesn't even exist you know like they they just don't know and they you just totally lose the jury jury uh, with one of those guys but um yeah that's always interesting oh the best part is like when you go to a scene and like a home that gets burglarized or something and uh the victim they're expecting you to bring in all this equipment and you know, dust for fingerprints everywhere and bring in special cameras and bring in certain lights and, you know, to look for like the footprints that were left behind that in the carpet and stuff. And because they saw it on CSI and it's like, no, no, I might take some photos (laughs) with my little broken camera here. (laughs) And, uh, I might be able to get some DNA off of the door handle, but you've also touched this door handle. So now I have to do a DNA. Well, I have to do a DNA elimination, so now I have to swab your mouth. <laughs> and they're like, wait, what? You have to swab my mouth? Yeah, I need to have a DNA example, or I have to do an elimination, you know, because they're going to find DNA, and it's going to be yours, but they have to know which DNA is yours. They, it's not going to, like, have your name written on it when they, when they look at the DNA. <laughs> so Let's take a sample. Oh, this is Kevin. <laughs> <laughs> right. So, yeah, that's that's always entertaining. <laughs> For sure. Oh man. Well, um, you know, being that that you guys have such a crazy stressful job and you spend a lot of hours working with each other. Yeah. You guys have got to get into some really fun stuff messing with each other. Like uh, how much like one of my favorite cop movies is Super Troopers. And like, oh yeah. I love all the games <laughs> they play with each other. And I yeah. I, I know you guys have got to get down with at least some of some of that stuff. <laughs> yeah, it, it it does. It um it all depends on what teams you're on. Um, like the first team I was with, we had an amazing camaraderie amongst us, and we knew each other really well because we were all hired together. And yeah, we were able to pull those pranks and joke with each other. And uh, like one of them, uh, my buddy he had this doll and it was like a homemade uh, cloth doll that his aunt had made. And it was the freakiest looking thing. Cause it was like one of these dolls that Excellent. you could stand, <laughs> that you could stand up. Right. 
And so it would like stand on itself, right? So we took turns of taking this doll and placing it in the patrol vehicle to where it was like looking. It was in the back. It was in the back seat where the doll was looking right into the mirror. And we were, we were on graveyard, right? So it was always at nighttime. So you'd get in your patrol car and you'd look up in your mirror and you'd see this freaky ass doll staring at you. And people would, guys would jump out of their car, pulling their guns That's out. So and it's just like, oh yeah. We had a lot of fun with that one. And then uh, then I got this call for service of someone laying out in the road. So I go out there and somebody had made this um, dummy full of – basically, they'd take clothing and had tied off the hands and had attached the shirt to the pants and they just stuffed it like crazy with uh, with newspapers and stuff. So it actually looked like somebody laying out in the street when I got there. And it, it actually had like a, a face mask on it and stuff like a – so it looked like a person. And at first, I thought that's what it was. And then I went up and approached. I was like, oh, man, it's just some dummy. I was like, well, I'm going to have some fun with this thing. <laughs> so I started doing the same thing. And so it got to the point at the end of shift. Um, our, so we're all done with our shift and everything. And I still have this thing that we'd been putting in each other's cars and freaking each other out. And so uh, um, I checked my sergeant's car. And he'd left his car open. He didn't lock the car. And I was like, oh, yeah, this is going to be great. So I set this – and it, he had a hoodie. The, the the dummy had a hoodie on it. So you could pull the hoodie over the head so you couldn't see the face or anything. And so we set it up in his back seat of his truck. And, oh, man, he went out there. He got in his truck. And he, he puts his car in reverse. And he's backing up. And so he, like – he, he's backing his truck up and he looks around to to check behind him and he sees this guy in there. He freaking slams on the brake, jumps out. He goes to pull his gun that he has on him. And, and, and so we start running out there yelling at him. He's like, no, 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 it's a joke. It's a joke. It was, <laughs> That's so funny. Yeah, dude. It was, yeah, it was fun. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. So, it, yeah, we do have a lot of um poking at each other having fun and stuff like that it's all harmless and and fun you know but you, you got to know who you're who you're joking around with oh you know? absolutely you there's always those guys that you know they're gonna gripe about it and get pissed but yeah it, it, everyone's like that though so we yeah it's a we had a, it's prank a lot like that of, going at work for a while <laughs> oh did you yeah um one of the guys his his wife um is a hairstylist and so she's got just one of those like mannequin heads that's got oh, the hair yeah. that you can practice on. And so he brought mm -hmm. it, he brought it into work and we set it up on a big stack of boxes and then put a coat over it. So it uh, looked like it was standing there and we put it, we knew our boss at the time would always come in through the back door yeah. and there was one fluorescent light above the door that would be the only thing on back there and the ballast had gone bad in it. And so it would flicker like a horror movie. And so we um, put oh, this geez. dummy back just out of the range of the pool of flickering light. And so he right. came in at like seven o'clock or he came in at like six 30 in the morning. He's all half asleep on a Monday. Yes. And he kind of sees something and then like he flicks the lights on and they take a sec to warm up. And so it's getting brighter and brighter. And then he said, he was telling us about it later. He said that he screamed at it. <laughs> and he was like, Hey, <laughs> <laughs> come it's out from there oh so we get a group text message be like fuck you guys <laughs> but what was great was we started moving it around because he'd leave before us and oh. so we just stack it and so we got him three or four times that week oh man we put it in That's his office when you we get put him it in multiple his bathroom. times <laughs> oh jeez. 
It was awesome. <laughs> it's so much yeah. fun pulling that sort of shit. But you're absolutely uh, yeah, right totally. that you got to know who you're doing that to. Yeah. Or, you know, you get, yeah. you get the wrong person that's going to get all butthurt about it. And then it's like, oh, right. they ruined the fun. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Yeah, that's for sure. And the other thing about, like, law enforcement um, is the camaraderie of it is – I've, I've, I have worked with my best friend and it, that was the only like real good relationship I had in my, or my prior business or prior work in, uh, the civilian world or in the business side of things is, yeah, he's, he is still my best friend, but in law enforcement, when you're on a team of guys and, and, and gals as well too, um, you get this camaraderie of you know, this band of brotherhood kind of mentality of you know we have each other's back uh, if we don't what do we have you know we're relying on each other um with our lives you know it's you always have a cover officer and that cover officer his whole prior his whole priority being your cover officer is to make sure you're safe and alive um not too many jobs uh do you have that where you're relying on somebody consistently to keep you safe and from harm. Uh, you know, it, I can't, I, I, I mean, seriously off the top of my head, I can't think of any other careers where you're constantly relying on your partners to make sure that you're safe and that nobody's going to hurt and harm you, uh, with any type of weapon or, or anything of the sort. So it, I definitely love that side of it. I loved it in the military. Um, we had, I didn't feel camaraderie until I was in war. When we were in Iraq, that's when I first really understood what camaraderie and the the band of brotherhood mentality was about. I was like, man, I have to rely on all these guys, and my life is in their hands. That makes a sense. And As, you know, especially especially being on foreign soil the way you guys were. That's each other right. was all you guys had. Right. And, uh, you know, I haven't had that experience in until I was in law enforcement again of like, okay, you know, my life is in these guys' hands. You know, if I'm talking to the victim over here and the suspect is still on scene, I need my cover officer to make sure that suspect doesn't do anything while I'm trying to talk to the victim. That they're not going to reach for a gun that's hidden behind the couch or something, you know? Mm-hmm. So, you know, it's... I it's nice having that and I've it's it just it's something very different and special with law enforcement I think and uh, fire firefighters they definitely have that as well too that camaraderie because it's such a, a dangerous job that they have to do with um, firefighting and stuff like that where they really do have to rely on each other and making sure that everything's set up I'm sure there are other careers out there where you do really have to rely on the other people that you work with. Um, but to the extent uh, of like military and police, they're far and few between. Yeah. I, yeah. Um, you know, when you, when you look towards the future of law enforcement, you know, we, we briefly talked about that robot earlier. Yeah. And um, the one that we, we kind of touched on, but then we didn't really discuss was those 360 degree glasses. Yeah. So, that's the thing. Okay, so all of law enforcement and the media and the public wants us to jump on this bandwagon of body cams. And the issue I personally have with body cams, I get why people want it. But the main issue that I have with it is that it's only giving you a very small slice of and and view of what's going on. So, I mean, 
whatever that angle is of that camera, that's all you're seeing. And a lot of the times, those body cams, they're being placed right in the center of their chest. And when you draw out your gun, if you do it properly, when you draw out your gun to point or out to point, your arms and your chest are basically covering that camera to where you can't really see what's going on. Yeah, absolutely. You might be able to hear, you, you can hear what's going on, but you can't see anything. You can't see Jack on those body cams. And, and if you actually do get a good angle, again, uh, it, it's only one little slice of it, right? While I'm on a scene, a lot of the times, those attacks by a suspect, they're coming out from left field. They're going to try to attack you when you're turned off to the, when you're turned to look at the victim or you're turning to look for evidence or something along those lines. They're waiting for a point where they feel they're, that you're at a weak point. It's, it's hardly ever at a point where you're facing straight on to them. And that's where the camera is pointed at, straight in front of you. So a lot of our work, when we're working with suspects and stuff, we're watching them constantly from the side of our, from, you know, from the corner of our eye. You're constantly trying to keep them in some type of view that, that, that the camera is not going to pick up at all. So, you might watch a body cam video where all of a sudden the officer's pulling out their gun and shooting somebody. And you're like, well, why did he do that? Well, what you didn't see is that the police officer saw out of the corner of their eye, the suspect reaching for a gun in their, in their waistband. The camera doesn't catch that, but the officer does. So that's where the problem comes in that where I see the problem is, is when people try to Monday, Monday or sidearm quarterback or whatever. What's the term? (laughs) Armchair Um, quarterback. Yeah. When they try to do that with the video cam, they're like, well, the officer just for no reason pulled out his gun and shot. That's what I see on the camera. Why they do that? And the officer's like, well, out of the corner of my eye, I saw the suspect reach for a gun out of his waistband. And then, then there's still that, there's still that, um, questionable area like well is the officer being truthful with me or the camera didn't show it so do i you know because i I'll, I'll believe anything i see on camera as true but i'll still people will still have doubt of what the police officer is saying is truthful or if the police officer re- remembers it correctly so with those 360 uh orby um 360 cam Glasses. What I like about that is it is truly giving you a 360 high definition uh, recording of everything that goes on. So I do see some potential of using those those um, those glasses in law enforcement to kind of describe them. It's basically a set of sunglasses, and on the front of the sunglasses, on the left and right side, basically right where your temple is at, there's two cameras there or there's a camera on each side basically right above your uh right where your temple of temples are at and then on the back of the sunglasses um behind your ears basically where you have the little tabs that go behind your ears from the sunglasses there's two more cameras that are set up back there that that give you a view from behind and those cameras are set up so that they're they're kind of like a fisheye angle um 
camera lens so that when it records, it's recording in full 360 from the very front of the police officer to the very back of the police officer. So when they go to review, they can do a full 360 um, review of everything that was going on around that police officer. And so did you see the video where like the guy climbs up on the mountain, he's wearing the glasses, and then there's somebody at home with a VR um uh, a VR glasses on and they're able to see what the, the guy climbing the mountain was able to see. Yeah. That was totally cool. Yeah. I mean, that's, that's what I would love to see. And that's what ultimately law enforcement needs is if the public demands us to use cameras, then we need to be able to videotape everything that goes on around us, a 360 view. Um, so that, we have a true representation of exactly what happened um, as compared to a small little sliver or view of, um, of what happened. So yeah, that's why I wanted to share that with you in the way of technology. But the thing with law enforcement and technology is they're always so slow to take on any kind of tech stuff because they, they, they'd rather, they don't want to be the first ones to step out there and try things that's what I typically see with law enforcement agencies. They don't want to be the first to, to test the waters uh, because they're, I'm assuming they're just afraid of what kind of reaction there's going to be or how it's, or how it's going to be taken by the media or what, what costs are going to be entailed that, that, that you can't really see. So typically like the smaller towns, they'll wait until like your big cities like New York or, LAPD, they take it on and they test it and they run it and use it for like several years before a smaller town, like, like a Sacramento size, um, type of town will take on that type of technology. And so it's this long delayed reaction to taking on new technology if they ever even do it. And the way that technology is nowadays, by the time law enforcement's ready to take on that that technology that's been out for four years, there's something completely new and brand new that outdates that. So when they go to buy that technology, it's, it's old hat and the technology is not even supported anymore. They don't do updates on it. So then they're stuck with this equipment that isn't being updated. There's nothing, you know, there's no, uh, there's no new, um, firewalls or anything put onto it because we had that issue with um, with we have these recording devices what we call dictaphones and our department recently took them on well we took them on about eight years ago and within four years they were obsolete because the company wasn't um, updating that that technology anymore and it, cause it'd been out for so long. They're just like, Oh, this is old hat. We don't even use that stuff. We have, we don't spend any time on that tech anymore. We're doing something else now. So as soon as they get it, the stuff becomes obsolete because it takes law enforcement so long to finally pick it up and use it that it's, <laughs> it's basically worthless. <laughs> so I don't, I don't know what would ever, um, what would ever change, um, to, to turn that around to where like, you know, law enforcement's actually taken on technology, um, fresh as it comes out, you know, I don't know, 
It's who knows. <laughs> <laughs> Do you think in the future we'll see a trend towards more like surveillance type efforts? Because I know there was some city in like New Jersey or whatever where they didn't they like dismiss the entire police force in lieu of just putting surveillance cameras everywhere. It just seems no, very nineteen eighty four to me. Right. I've never heard of that. I've heard of cities putting up like the surveillance cameras and stuff on intersections and stuff like that. But then you have the citizens and the public fight that and say that that's a breach and or that's violating the Fourth Amendment, Fourth Amendment rights. Mm-hmm. We and see that in Cedar it, Rapids it constantly. They've just right. put um, there's several traffic cameras all over town. Right, and uh, your Facebook friends with enough people in the Cedar Rapids area, and you will see people bitching about it. Right, yeah, and it, those things do issue out um, citations and stuff uh, for running a light or going too fast or speeding or something like that, and. So th- there's some constitutional things that have to be figured out with that stuff um, because the crime's not being committed in the presence of a police officer. So how is it that the person can be cited for that crime? Well, yeah, because isn't it worked into the Constitution that you have the right to you know question your accuser or whatever? And can you question yeah. a robot? Right. Does, <laughs> does that mean that you then have the right to say, mm-hmm. well... I demand all the maintenance records for this camera and like demand all this information that they might not have in hand. And then all of a sudden, you know, I mean, granted you might've had to put a lot of work into getting out of paying a hundred dollar ticket, but you know, get get it thrown out on technicality pretty easy. It seems like if you're willing to fight it. Yeah. And I, I definitely see that happening and, you know, or you could uh, just use the cruise control has happened. Right. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, exactly. You know, I drive a lot for work, so it's kind of, it's in my job description to where, you know, hey, if you're out there getting uh, traffic infractions, it's, you know, you're not going to be driving for us any longer. Right. And so, yeah. you know, that's just part of my deal is that I get in and, it, it, you know, I've gotten away with it for years. And so I'm going to assume I'm going to continue to get away with it that I can set the cruise at around five to seven over and I'm not going to get pulled over. Yeah. But, um, <clears throat> but yeah. yeah, people really do hate those cameras, you know, effective as they may be. Yeah. Yeah. No, I know. And uh, I mean, that. That's the thing with like drones. I'll, I could I could sit here and give you a thousand different reasons why drones would be awesome for law enforcement and how effective they would be in reducing crime and stuff like that. But the thing is, is with the drones, is the second you fly over somebody's backyard, videotaping or it recording, you are you are stepping on that of. Um, those constitutional rights, you know, you're invading their private area as, as a law enforcement agency, you're, you're potentially peering into their private area that you don't have. Yeah. That's a creepiness um, to constitutional, it. right? Yeah. Yeah. And Oh yeah, totally, totally does have some creepiness into it, but there's a lot of argument as to what could be very useful, uh, how it can be very useful in the way of law enforcement as well too, of, um, you know, instead of doing a vehicle pursuit, if I have a drone attached to my vehicle and I could deploy that drone and they, I know Japan has this technology now where you can lock a drone onto a target, a moving target, and that drone will continuously follow that, that moving target. Uh, I don't, I'm sure we have it here in the U S I've only seen it, um, actually presented in, in 
the Japanese market. But so if I have one of those drones on my vehicle, instead of getting that vehicle pursuit, deploy my uh, drone, it'll follow that vehicle until it stops and we can see where that suspect ultimately goes. It's basically taking your, uh, your police helicopters and putting it into those same functions into a drone. So, I mean, that's just one quick example of how those a drone could be ex- extremely helpful in the way of law enforcement. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. But, you know, there's a lot of constitutional things that have to be addressed, and uh, it, it's pretty expensive to run those things. Actually, when I've heard of one local uh, news channel in Nevada, they're actually running uh, a drone uh from sun up to sundown, they actually have two pilots because they have to have it. They have to be FAA, FAA approved and actual flight pilots uh, to run the drone for the news channel. And so they're a private entity. So they're able to do that. And so they're able to deploy this drone out to media events or for weather situations like we like um northern nevada has been having a lot of flood issues so they would be able to deploy this drone out during that to uh to get video of the areas that are flooding and stuff and use that for their uh media reports yeah those drones are really really cool um one of my friends that i climb with has got a really nice one they right. bring out every once in a while and man he gets some really cool pictures of us up on the wall but, oh that's got to be cool for climbing too oh, because you can kind of map out your climb and stuff too right um you know you probably you could to. use it like that but you know with yeah. the sort of stuff that we're climbing in iowa it's right you know it's your average route in iowa would probably be around 50 foot or so and oh, okay. so it could be anywhere from 30 to 70 but um yeah the thing that's that's weird about it is that you're climbing and then all of a sudden it sounds like there's a swarm of bees coming up on you. Yeah, they're so loud. <laughs> it's Those neat, things though. are so loud. That one he's yeah. got is really fancy though. And I, yeah. I was talking to him one day. I'm like, I'm like, dude, that thing is just really nice. How much was that? And he's like, I think he said it was like twelve hundred dollars. Yeah. Like, oh, disposable <laughs> income once again. You know? It's yeah. Like, oh, I could only imagine having cool toys like that. But right. Yeah, I know. Yeah, that was. Uh, that was the second job I looked at in the military. Well, it actually, the um, the drone pilot position wasn't open. It, it, and drones were just coming out when I signed up. And uh, I thought about switching over to that because it just seemed like it would have been a very lucrative career field. <laughs> when I got out of the army, I was like, dude, these things are going to be everywhere. And Well, they certainly uh, got sure enough. popular. I mean, you know, not maybe popular, but they definitely got used a lot more in the last uh, administration. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, that's for sure. Yeah. The unmanned armed or the unmanned armed. Um, I can't think of the names right now. <laughs> yeah, I always just the called drones, them the drones, yeah. but yeah. Yeah. The drones. Yeah. Um, yeah. The, the military has some acronym, crazy acronym for them or something now, but yeah, I just thought that that would have been a very cool career field very lucrative career field because I, I could see the see how that was going to be used quite a bit in the civilian world uh, as it is today. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Um, well, I think we covered all my bullet points I had here anyway. <laughs> yeah, I think we did. I think we got 
basically everything covered. Yeah, I really, really appreciate you taking time out of your schedule to, uh, to uh, you know, come on the Startcast and and talk about oh, this yeah, for stuff. For sure, I think in this day and age, you know, it's really important to get a police officer's perspective on the world. Yeah, because you know, like we yeah. discussed earlier, you guys are seeing, you guys are seeing the world from a very different perspective than what the rest yeah. of us get to, you know, are lucky enough to see. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and like again, I totally encourage anybody to go out there and do a ride along just to basically pop that bubble <laughs> of the world that most of us live in outside of law enforcement and uh, just to kind of see the totality of the world that you live in as compared to like the community where I live and I deliberately live in a jurisdiction that's that's different from the one that I work um, because I hate driving around uh, my jurisdiction and because I always remember all those calls and especially the ugly ones. And so it's really hard for me to drive into my jurisdiction on my days off because that's all I think about is work. It's like, okay, I remember that call and I remember what happens on that street corner and I know what, who that suspect is. And, and, and I would hate to walk into like a grocery store and have a suspect come up behind me that I arrested last weekend and, you know, not realize it's me until I'm at, you know, like until I'm checking out and they're like, you know, Oh, Hey, you're the one that arrested me last week, you know? So I deliberately live in a totally different, area of town and it's it's a nice very low crime area and i like being in my neighborhood on my days off because i do kind of slip back into that bubble it, it kind of frees me from my work mind for my days off and then you know i can switch back into to cop mode um when i get back to work but it's nice to have that that freedom from work um but on the same token people that always live in that world of, you know, thinking that there's no crime or there's really no bad guys out there. Um, I think it's healthy for them to do a ride along and kind of have their eyes open like, whoa, wait a minute. Maybe I should be a little bit more cautious about, uh, about, you know, my behaviors in, in public space in public areas and and be a little bit more cautious of the people around me because at any moment somebody could pull out a gun and try to do a robbery or try to jack my car as i'm trying to fill up my gas you know at a gas station so that's very true it's important to think defensively yes yeah yeah Um, that's totally agree that's one of those things that my wife always makes fun of me about is that she says that if i have to walk across a parking lot at night like if I'm going from the gas pump into the store, or yeah. she says that I walk completely differently than I do during the day. Uh, yeah, that's funny that she picks up on that. Yeah, too. and I'm like, well, uh, yeah, it's like you know, it's it, you can take that all the way back to elementary school. Yeah. You're gonna get picked on if you look like an easy target, and I yeah. I think the same can be said in your adult life. You know, if you're walking around and you're not paying attention to your surroundings, you never know when somebody that has ill intentions towards you might slide up on you unnoticed where, you know, if you're walking across the parking lot and you're, you're looking around, you got your shoulders straight, you know, you might, you look right. like you're ready for action. <laughs> right. You know, yeah. I'm in, and by no means am I a badass. <laughs> like I am, <laughs> I've got a very good record of talking my way out of fights. <laughs> well, you know, growing up, I was always one of the bigger guys. And so it'd be yeah. like, okay, if somebody's got something to prove, who are they going to come and pick on in the group? Me. It's going to be the I'm big, the big yeah. guy. 
but right. I'm also the calm guy. And so I'd be like, right. dude, I don't know who you are. I'm no, I don't want to arm wrestle you. I don't want to get punched in the face by you. Just please leave me alone. Uh, <laughs> so Stark, the big teddy bear. Yeah, pretty much. <laughs> <laughs> but, um, <sighs> but I don't know. It's never a bad idea to tell somebody to think defensively and, um, and yeah, I could imagine that a ride along would be a very eye opening experience for people. Yep, yep, definitely is. That's that's how I ended up in this field, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> I just missed out on one of those in high school on career day. That was what I signed up to do for, oh, my, yeah. for my job shadow day, and then it just happened to work out that the day I was supposed to do it, we had a massive snowstorm. Oh, geez! And so you know, I lived in a, a smaller town, and I was going to have to drive you know a half hour into Cedar Rapids to go yeah. do this ride along and so i was like, right. well guess i don't get to do that <laughs> yeah and to add to that if you guys if if you do do a ride along do it at night do it on like a swing shift or graveyard uh because it's a totally different world because th- th- those are the shifts i work are the graveyard swing shift hours and that's it's a totally different beast as compared to like your day shift type of police work where you're dealing a lot with like you know um i'm calling the police because my neighbor's tree has grown over the fence kind of calls as compared to you know like the call i was telling you about where the guy answers his door with a hatchet hanging over his or you know (laughs) over his head you know you don't typically get that during day shift (laughs) so if you want to see some real action and really broaden your understanding of the world go on to a graveyard or swing shift uh um right along (laughs) that's for sure (laughs) Oh man, yeah. Oh no, the hatchet one that would have just, oh. <laughs> it's just nuts. Yeah. Uh. <laughs> well well hey Sturdy man, I really, really appreciate you know the the conversation here. It was really great. Yep. I totally enjoyed it too. I got a kick out of it, man. <laughs> right on. Wow, that was a pretty awesome episode. Um, very sobering, a lot of that content, a lot of the stuff that we talked about there. But, um, you know, it's a serious subject, and it's definitely something that's, that's you know, being talked about a lot in the media, on the news. And I'm sure, like anything else, there's going to be a lot of misconceptions, and it was great to get that side of the badge you know, the perspective from that side of the badge and um, hear what they have to say, you know, because whatever your thoughts are on law enforcement, these are people that are out there and they're putting their lives on the line to protect citizens like you and I. Um, If you like what you heard today, get on iTunes and leave the show a review. If you'd like to learn more about any of the things we discussed on uh, StartCast, get on my Facebook page, StartCast. That's all one word, S-T-A-R-K-C-A-S-T. If you want to send me an email, you can send it to startcastpod at gmail.com, or you can also get in touch with me through the Facebook page. You know, I'm easy to get a hold of. If you want to shout at me, say what's up, you know, send me an email. I'll read it on the show. Uh, big thanks again to Sturdy. I really appreciate him taking the time out of his schedule to come on the show. And uh, thank you all for listening. Until next time, this has been Starkcast.